everybody. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grilling JR with the voice of wrestling. Good old Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? I'm great, Connie. Great. It's a great week. One of my favorite uh, weeks of the year. It takes me back to my boyhood, my growing up in eastern Oklahoma with, in a, as the only child in a four-room, four-room, not bedroom, four-room concrete blockhouse. But there's one thing about that little concrete blockhouse, man. On Thanksgiving Day, my mama made it smell really, really good. So anytime I'm anywhere and I smell Thanksgiving food, which to me means cornbread dressing. Somebody said, what is dressing? Well, you may call it stuffing where you live. I call it cornbread dressing. And my granny and my mom made the best. And uh, and that's exactly what Jan would cook every Thanksgiving. I, I didn't really care if we had anything else. Turkey, chicken, ham, didn't matter. Cornbread dressing was my was my my big thing, and so it's a it's a good holiday to re- have good memories, watch a little football, you know, be be with special people. So I'm enjoying it. So I, I hope everybody else does too. The ones that celebrate it or observe it, uh, you know, enjoy it. You know what the hell is one of the best family holidays of the entire year. Yeah, it's a uh, fat guy Christmas, and uh, yeah, I'm like yeah, you. It, I grew up with dressing, and my go-to. This is a casserole season, as you know. Mm-hmm. My mom's go-to were broccoli casserole and squash casserole. Does does Jim Ooh. Ross have a favorite casserole around Thanksgiving? Well, the old green bean casserole is hard to supplant at least once a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with all the mushroom soup and the grilled onions and all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, but I'm really intrigued by the the ones you missed your mom made. I, I would be very invested in both those, quite frankly. I think you'd be like into it. it. We got to get you down here for a Thanksgiving sometime, but of course we this will. year you're on the road, man. Last night was the big AEW show. I think that's going to be a bit of a tradition there at Sears center. I could be wrong, but, uh, what a cool, you know, man, wrestling and Thanksgiving, it just goes together like peanut butter and jelly. And people say that about you and our subject today, Jerry, the King Lawler. And oddly enough, Jerry actually beats you to the company. He comes in in 1992, but you and I've never talked about this, you know, through your Days working the territory system. Jerry Lawler has been a, a mover and a shaker since at least the seventies. When's the first time you, uh, you had the opportunity to meet Jerry. I met him in person for the first time, Conrad at, at a, uh, around 83 or four ish, uh, Watts flew in Jerry Jarrett and the King from Memphis to Shreveport to go to our TV and to observe because there was a talent exchange in the making and it, and that did happen. And, uh, you know, uh, th- th- that way Lawler and law, uh, and Jerry could better evaluate the talent, what we had, what they could do, et cetera, et cetera. And give Watts some, just some, uh, you know, feedback. And I remember one of the feedbacks was the fact that all of our, our good looking guys are heels and all of our big, ugly guys are baby faces. And I thought that was an interesting, I remember that having that discussion with those guys, but Lawler came in. Would share it. And then, uh, he set in for a match. So the first match that Jerry Lawler and I ever broadcast together was a mid South wrestling match that mm. was taped in the Irish McNeil boys club in Shreveport. Uh, and little do we know it was a one off. That's the first one we had met. Now I was aware of Jerry. Jerry was very smart about how he marketed himself in the, in Memphis. You don't stay alive in the, in your territory as long as he did. Uh, and not be doing some things right, especially in promoting yourself and your, and the brand. So, uh, you know, Jerry and I had a, 
it was fun doing the, the call with him, but I had been aware of him, as I said, started to say, through the after magazines and so forth. He was very, very good about, I don't want to say manipulating, but maybe that's a, that's a, that word is applicable here, but uh, encouraging the magazines to do stuff with him. And I remember after I got in big trouble one time for, uh, I think he showed uh, Lawler had beaten Andre in Memphis or, or slammed him or something. I don't remember, some controversial deal. And I know the WWF office got very upset about that. So, But Lawler's always a great entrepreneur. He still is. Talk to me a little bit about what his reputation in the business was, because I think a lot of our younger listeners only know of Jerry, the King Lawler, the commentator and sort of the comedy wrestler in the WWF, which, you know, he's definitely had more comic relief in this WWE phase of his career than than he did when he was the top guy in Memphis. And if you didn't live in that area, or maybe you're not old enough to know, you may only know him as a commentator. Uh, chat with everybody a little bit about who he was as an in-ring performer in his heyday. Well, I, I said this before on other, uh, other, other entities that when people add on Q and A's we do like the one we just did not too long ago in Nashville with Tony and yourself, uh, people ask those questions. And, and the one thing about, uh, Lawler that I say is that if you, if you, if you look at all the attributes that he brought to the table, it still brings to the table in a large degree. If you look at all the attributes that Jerry possessed, all the skill set, you have, you'll be very hard pressed to find any wrestler that had more, that checked more boxes than the King and checked them, not just in a, a faint pencil check with a big, uh, Sharpie check, big, bold. He was a hell of a baby face. I mean, amazing. He was a hell of a heel. Believable, uh, understood crowd psychology to its utmost degree. He was a, he was an excellent promoter. And the fact that they made money in that territory for many, many years. If you only think about how that territory ended in its final days, it's not unlike the final days of most any territory that had final days, but the territory for many, many years, decades, as a matter of fact, was very successful. And Jerry was a, a learned to be a hell of a promoter there. We know that when he broke his leg or he had various ailments, his managerial abilities to talk for his talent is, uh, as good as anybody ever heard. Uh, then he put him behind the mic. Uh, and a lot of wrestlers are obsessed with either coming up that, that pre-planned, uh, cute line or to have the, get themselves over more specifically. And Jerry was never that way with me. Certainly. I don't recall that he, we, we were working together. And I think that's why our team worked so well. Uh, but if you look at all the things he did well, Conrad, you're going to be hard pressed to find anybody that checked more boxes with a bold Sharpie. Than Jerry Lawler. He was that skill. So for those that are younger that, that only see him as you described so uh, accurately as a comedy guy, uh, then, uh, you're, you've missed the boat. Some of that stuff, uh, from the, that Memphis territory where he, he was the booker, the top baby face or the top heel, uh, was am amazing. Uh, Shakespeare, great production as far as in bell to bell, good psychology. And he, re he worked with some of the biggest stars in the history of pro wrestling and that all came through Memphis at one time or another. So his career, unfortunately, uh, for some, it's been largely forgotten the, the early part, the young baby face years, the heel turn, et cetera, et cetera, dominating his market that he grew up in, uh, has been largely forgotten. But the good news is that it's accessible. 
WWE Network's got a bunch of stuff on it, uh, YouTube, obviously. Uh, and then I'm sure Jerry's got stuff on his website that, uh, uh, you know, that would probably also lend you to be able to see some great stuff. But all the things he's done, it's just incredible. I was lucky to have him with my, uh, as my partner. And I used to tell him this, it embarrassed me sometimes. I said, you know, you're the star of the damn team, pal. You, you're the star. I'm the point guard. My job is to get you the ball and shoot those threes, get hot and roll it. And that's kind of how I looked at that deal. He was the star of the team. I put, he, I put him before me and because it worked, not because I'm a benevolent, nice guy. Oh, JR's a nice guy. Bullshit. I'm not that nice a guy, but, but it worked egocentrically Conrad. I didn't want to be a part of a failure and the JR and King combination was far from that. Yeah. I mean, it's still a, a duo that people are talking about today is one of the most iconic duos. And it's just fascinating to me that that's just one piece of, of Jerry Lawler's contribution. You know, we talked about his view as maybe a, a comedy wrestler to a younger fan base, but I think as I get older, I have more appreciation for all that Jerry Lawler accomplished and the Mount Rushmore of wrestling discussion is, is talked about a lot and it feels like they just go to the top guys in the WWF history, whether it's rock or stone cold or Hulk Hogan or Ric Flair or whoever. But Jerry Lawler belongs on a mountain somewhere with the likes of Bobby, the brain Heenan, because I don't think there was ever a job, whether it was in front of the camera behind the scenes or behind the microphone or in the ring that Jerry Lawler didn't excel at. I haven't found that yet. I haven't found anything. He was, uh, you know, he was a great traveling partner too, you know, for me, but, uh, but you're right. You know, a more, more focused and more oriented as far as his career is concerned. Yes. He was, like I said, uh, if you have a guy that's a great baby face, sometimes there's a little drop off between the, on the transition from that guy being a baby face or, and then becoming a villain. Uh, and then there's another drop off sometimes when you have a singles wrestler that becomes a tag wrestler or a tag wrestler that becomes a singles wrestler. Uh, Lawler was largely a tag wrestler early on because, you know, Jackie Fargo kind of adopted him there and he was Fargo's, uh, kind of a, you know, a protege, so to speak. Uh, but everything Jerry did was at a, at a high level, as good as anybody else you could find or book in that role. And you can't find that very often. And then the, his magic for all those years, you know, is, uh, behind the mic. And if you look at that, that situation, our, we, uh, made sure that our team evolved. And one of those, uh, evolution points is the fact that Jerry became, when he first got there, uh, I went on the air and I think. Uh, I can't remember when, when Raw started, 93-ish, maybe January 93, yeah. Yeah. So, something like that. He was a heel and a very annoying, uh, you know, convincing heel uh, that knew how to, knew psychology and knew how to get people over, uh, not just physically, but mentally and, 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 and TV persona-wise. And then as time went on, when uh, uh, Vince left the, ter- left the Terrio, and became Mr. McMahon, then all of a sudden Lawler uh, evolved, kept evolving, and he became more of an ally of JR's. And we were we were both baby faces to some degree, even though we'd say things were controversial from time to time, speak our mind from time to time. But basically, we were there. We knew what our role was. So his role changed again, and now uh, with him on Raw, uh, with a whole new set of uh, partners, uh, his role is still evolving. Uh, you know, I watched a little bit, I heard a little bit of his work on, uh, over the weekend, 
uh, and thought, you know, he's he's still evolving, still changing, which reminds me, you know, we talked about Chris Jericho doing that. The smart guys figure out how to evolve and stay ahead of the game, especially when you're like Jerry, who's getting close to 70 right now. And, you know, he still works every weekend just about. I mean, if he's got a weekend off, it's rare because he enjoys the wrestling much, much more than he enjoys the broadcasting. Even in a small venue, a few hundred people, He's there. He can pull a strap down. He can get the music entrance. He can all that stuff. He enjoys that. And why the hell not? So I asked him the other day, I told this story here. I said, how long are you going to do this shit? How long are you going to go to these little places and do all this stuff, travel? It's a travel, folks. It's not that actually getting there or being there. It's getting there and getting home. He said, I'm going to do it as long as they keep booking me. I thought that's probably the most level-headed, honest, sincere answer that there was as long as promoters are willing to pay him to come do what he can do in the ring or wants to do in the ring, then he's going to continue to do it. And he has a set of limit. Well, I'm going to quit when I'm 73 or I'm 75 or who knows. Uh, but this, it's all he's ever done. So I encourage you to do it, continue to do it for as long as you can. And as long as he's healthy, we should mention that the reason we're doing this show today is because tomorrow is his birthday. So at some point today or tomorrow, uh, find Jerry on Twitter and wish him a happy 70th birthday. There uh, you go. Let's talk about He's, when he goes to the WWF the first time he actually beats you there. He makes his way up in 92 and up until this point, he sort of ran his promotion, sort of rallying the troops, the local fans and his market there in Tennessee to, uh, pull for him at, by making fun of the big guys. So. You know, if Hulk Hogan's the top guy, he's going to show you clips of when he beat Hulk Hogan. Or if Andre's in a big angle, he's going to show you where he body slammed Andre before Hogan ever did or whatever. And now after years of sort of villainizing and playing the us against them mentality with the WWF, he joins the company to the point that Meltzer's headline that week is hell must have frozen over at some point in the past week. Were you surprised to see Lawler make his way to New York or was it just logical at some point, everybody's going to have a stop through New York. If you're good enough and, uh, Vince can make money with you. You're going to be booked to New York. If you're good enough and you can, you can create new money. If you create sell tickets or whatever your, your measuring stick is for monetary success. And, uh, Jerry was just a proven commodity at that, at that stage in, in the early nineties, uh, he had. He had proven that he could work with anybody of varying skill sets. He could work as a baby face. He could work as a heel. Uh, and I think, you know, the fact that he became a broadcaster was accidental anyway, because that's not why he was brought into uh, WWF at that time. It was to be a wrestler and which made him very, very happy. So, uh, uh, yeah, I think it's just, it was an, it was a natural thing. I don't feel like being, it was a lot of those old wounds, man. Look at how many guys have got wounds in WWE now had an issue. They bitched here while, you know, they, they had an issue years ago or, or two years ago or whatever. Sometimes man, the almighty dollar, the, the chance for stardom, that big footprint or that's global is too much to overcome. And I'm not saying that was the only case for Jerry because Jerry has one primary motivator money. And there was money and more money at WWF at that time than anywhere else he could have gone. Let's talk a little bit about when he comes in, you mentioned that he is brought in as a wrestler. Eventually Vince talks him into doing some commentary. One of the stops along the way is to create the King's court. 
uh, which the WWF, I guess had made famous, uh, maybe 10 years prior with Piper's pit. And so they're always looking for, you know, the next thing, whether it's the funeral parlor or the barbershop or whatever, well, King's court is going to be what they do for Jerry, but it's not all smooth sailing for Jerry because Jerry's a former promoter. And, um, you know, sometimes the boys aren't always in love with the promoter. So apparently according to the rumor and innuendo, his first week or two in somebody takes a shit in his crown. Mm-hmm. That was a sac- Sacramento. I, that was before I got there. I heard the story. It was classless. Uh, that's, that's a, a, you know, bodily functions seem to be a fun thing to talk about in wrestling at some point for some people, jokes, skits, vignettes, bodily functions. Uh, it's a, it's bizarre and almost, uh, disturbing way that some people in wrestling have this affinity for creating, uh, these, uh, bodily function angles, storylines, pieces of business, whatever. And somebody thought it'd be really funny that, uh, you know, to take a dump in Jerry's crown while he was away from his away from it, you know, it's in the locker room. So one of the boys, you know, there's a lot of rumors who it was. I have no idea. I would hate to, hate to point a finger at somebody that was innocent, but it is uncalled for. And, uh, I, I, you know, but that's the deal. You know, somebody thought they got a bad payoff, you know, five years ago, or they, they, they didn't get their push five. The, the great thing about one of the significant things about wrestling, it doesn't change folks is these son of bitches, and I love them, don't get me wrong, and I'm in that group, I'm on their team, sometimes we don't like to look in the mirror when things don't go our way. You know, I'm right in the middle of finishing, it just finished on Wednesday, uh, Under the Black Hat, our next book, the continuation of my autobiography. And I figured out, Conrad, God damn, I was a problem to deal with at times. I was challenging, because I was headstrong and stubborn and set in my ways, and didn't want to, didn't want to compromise a lot of times and trust issues. There's a lot of things there. So I picked up all the great habits along the way that other wrestlers had already had. I acquired those, you know, I'm the guy that can roll a joint steering a car with his knees. That's really a bad, that's a very marketable skill by the way, folks nowadays. Uh, but that's the whole thing. I, I it's just, uh, we got to look in the mirror more often. And, and sometimes that's not the case, but nonetheless that happened. But he didn't, he didn't waver. I mean, a lot of guys, I'm out of here. I'm done. That's it. But he didn't do that. And, uh, I just feel badly for whoever did, because I'll say this, they've kept it a well-kept secret as to actually who the guilty party was. And, uh, but it was obviously somebody that had worked in Memphis at one time that was in that locker room that night that didn't like a payoff or a creative direction. It's sad. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, 1993. Um, not too terribly long after you come into the company, you're going to be calling WrestleMania nine. Jerry Lawler is not a part of that broadcast. Uh, later in the year, Jerry's going to have some legal troubles. Ultimately he would come out victorious on the other side of that. All that's been beat up to death. If you'd like to hear more about it, we did a something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard, where we did a bit of a deep dive on it, but it is sort of fascinating to think that. Cause the timeline to me just never made sense, but I guess it's true. You technically could have done WrestleMania nine with Jerry, the King Lawler. Instead you do it with uh, Bobby, the brain Heenan and the macho man. Was it ever discussed you and no. Lawler at WrestleMania nine? As far as you know? No, no. He was at that time. Uh, he was strictly coming in as a, as a, uh, in ring talent. As I recall, as I remember, uh, best better said, perhaps, 
the only reason, the reason Jerry got on raw was because Savage walked. And it's one of those old classic deals where you know, they're gone until they're gone type deal. And, you know, subterfuge of wrestling and the mistrust and the paranoia and all the normal bullshit. Uh, and so when they realized that Savage was not going to be at the, at the taping that night on site, uh, it was suggested that Lawler do it. You know, it might've been Bruce suggested, Heck, I don't know who did it, but everybody, everybody, anybody had been around Jerry that had watched uh, any amount of, uh, territorial TV that had a local syndicated television, it's not a national overlay, uh, knew how good a talker he was and that any, that in any environment he was going to excel, you know, he's like, he's like a lot of guys, he's got that driving force that he doesn't want to be the, the joke of the card or, you know, he wants, he's like stone cold used to be, if he didn't go on last, he was pissed off. And so I'm not saying that about Jerry, but Jerry was a very proud guy that knew he could still work as well as anybody in the company at that time. And I'm not going to disagree with that at all. Uh, but I think that's, that was the deal. Savage walked, Vince got a recommendation and uh, all of a sudden, uh, Lawler is working with McMahon and, and it was seamless. It just, it was from day one. It was good. Hey guys, are you looking for a great father's day gift idea? I know I was, and I found it a couple of years ago with paint your life. With Paint Your Life, you get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mom, your dad, or both. You see, Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a -a one-of-a-kind, beautiful hand-painted portrait done by professional artists. You can upload a photo to create anything you can imagine, maybe in a special location or a favorite pet. There's lots of options. You pick the artist, the medium, and you even get to work with the artist to make sure it's perfect. You get started in less than five minutes and you can get the portrait in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded guaranteed. And right now as a limited time offer, get 20% off. That's right. 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Text the word Ross to 87204. That's Ross to 87204. Text Ross to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Of course, Savage leaves at the end of night four. Um, But the thing that I think everybody wants to talk about is his feud with Bret Hart. I think his feud with Bret Hart on TV is probably his most significant wrestling feud or angle or whatever within the confines of WWE. Of course, you know, it happens after Bret becomes King of the ring in 1993. That's a natural feud for the real King of wrestling, Jerry, the King Lawler and, uh, the, the big kiss my foot match. As silly as some of this sounds, this was a uh, pretty good stuff in 1993. Do you think this is his best work within the company or at least most notable? Oh yeah. Most notable by far, because he's working with a world-class athlete in Bret Hart. And again, as we, we've mentioned this show and others have picked up on Twitter, 
uh, hey, hey, it's Conrad for you and at JRSBBQ for me uh, on Twitter. Uh, Brett, I don't remember seeing Bret Hart ever in a bad match. Then you add someone with a skill set and the psycholo- psychological uh, uh, abilities that Lawler had in telling a story that matched Brett's, no doubt about that. You have two guys that are all, totally on the same page. But the most important uh, thing about that was that it was a uh, personal issue. There was something personal at stake that had been said or done that created this union between the good guy and the bad guy. And it was a clear enough deal where you're insulting someone's parents. That's the one thing we can all say. Everybody's got parents. You had to have a mom and a dad to get here. So in some shape, form, or fashion, uh, we all got parents. We can all identify with some of that stuff. And most normal people can, certainly. Uh, but that was the deal there. We could get, we could understand it. It was personal. And, and Lawler was uh, great at stirring the pot and uh, creating that, uh, angst. So, uh, yeah, I think it was the best thing that, that they had done. And I know he, he used to, he complained mildly complained one time. He thought he was, was going to break his leg, sticking his toe in his mouth. Uh, but it was an old school wrestling angle. It was an old school territorial stipulation. Kiss my foot. You know, the one, the loser's got to kiss the other guy's foot. I did a version of that with Michael Cole. It wasn't a stipulation, but I had to kiss his feet and they had made up to have uh, like this athlete, athlete, athlete's foot and all this other fungus and shit on it. Uh, that was so funny though. And humor is so important in wrestling Conrad. God damn it. The only reason I watched wrestling is to get a good belly laugh for God's sakes. Why else would you watch pro wrestling in today's market? Just I'm being fucking facetious here. But that was a deal. It was a personal issue. Everybody could get it. And Lawler executed the plan to a T and Brett showed the exact amount of realistic outrage. And let's not forget good old Stu and Helen. They were there too with their outrage and, and, uh, that helped build the angle as well. So it was all the stars aligned. It was all good performers in a role and it was real. And so I, I thought that you're right. That's I, Jerry did a lot of things. Uh, and, and unfortunately the people are going to remember his angle at WrestleMania with Cole. That's the only time he got to wrestle at WrestleMania was in a gimmick match with the announcer. And that was, that's, I think that's been kind of a letdown for him. It would be for me. So, uh, in any event, uh, yeah, that the Bret Hart stuff, but look, you, we can't give Bret enough credit because he just, it, during that period he was on and Jerry realized he was hot. He was on and Jerry was smart to know that. I can hook my, my, uh, try now, right now, now, and we're going to kick some ass. And they did. We should mention that, uh, it all comes to a head for Jerry with some of his legal problems around survivor series, 1993. He's supposed to have a bit of a, a, a payoff for his Bret Hart feud here. It's supposed to be the King's court against the Hart family. Of course, instead, uh, Lawler sidelined, they replace him with, uh, Sean Michaels. He has three nights. And those nights, allegedly one of them was supposed to be Terry Funk. We'll talk about that another time, but it's a shame that we never got to see it pay off exactly the way we hoped. Hey, let me ask you about Jerry Lawler here. Once these charges are dismissed, is this just a, a huge relief to him? I mean, what's your relationship like with him? And now I know now you guys are best of friends. Was that the case here in 93 or, or just business acquaintances at this point? I think business acquaintance is probably a better way to describe it. You know, we, the only time we have met, as I mentioned earlier, was in the mid eighties there in Shreveport, uh, other than, you know, the, you know, reading about Jerry and the after mags, I was 
And then knowing talents that had worked in Memphis, uh, if you're a star and, you, and you're booked in Memphis, at some point you did work with the king. At least say you hoped you did because that's the way you're going to make the most money because he was the most over. But I think we were just basically a, a business partners. We had a lot. We did realize early on in our, when we started working together that we had a, a tremendous amount of things in common, uh, that we could build on. And we did, and we have, and that friendship has lasted all these years. Uh, and that's rare in the wrestling business, uh, quite frankly, because it's such a, uh, paranoid laden insecure, uh, world more often than not, because, uh, the most powerful weapon in wrestling, as we all know, folks, is the pencil because it's got, or actually I'll take that back. The most powerful weapon in all of wrestling Conrad is the eraser. And so you're, you're one eraser swipe away from being eliminated from the main event slot or wherever you want it, wherever, whatever you're shooting for. So, uh, but we found out we had a whole lot of good things in common and, and we built on those, but as I was about to say, you just don't have that many lasting friendships in the wrestling business. One that's lasted, you know, 30 plus years. Let's talk about when he comes back, you know, the charges are dropped. Uh, he's in the clear Vince McMahon knows that, but he still keeps him off TV for what feels like several months. He doesn't actually come back, uh, until WrestleMania 10 and he's here doing commentary with Vince. And a few months later, we see Lawler start a bit of a feud with Roddy Piper. We know that that's going to culminate in maybe not the best pay-per-view match Lawler ever had, but something that's interesting along the way here is they do a Kings court with a kid who does a Piper imitation. Do you remember hearing how this came to be? Mm, was it the kid from Canada? Uh, allegedly he, uh, sent in a tape and, yeah. uh, for, for WWF mania and the office saw it, loved it. And they paid him a thousand dollars to come in and you know, work out the act with Jerry Lawler. And, um, it's not, it's not Jason's sensation. If that's who okay. you're, you're referencing. No, I, that's what I was thinking. Uh, so no, I don't remember. I, I remember vaguely, uh, us doing something along those lines because here, all of a sudden you got Piper and Lawler potentially, uh, in a, in a program and how much better could it get? I mean, you're not looking for hurricane Ronis in this match. You're looking for drama and crowd psychology and, and, and bringing me to the dance, uh, luring me in with their promos and both Lawler and Piper, I guess we could all agree to some, uh, uh, level that they're two of the very best talkers ever in wrestling. So why not put them together? Same, uh, uh area of, uh, same skill sets, same age, basic age uh, groups, so forth. So, yeah, I think that that was a good booking, but you know, I think Vince was just very cautious about what the media would say if there was not a little bit more of a, uh, sabbatical, at least a public TV sabbatical for, uh, for Jerry, uh, after all the bad publicity that, that was created, uh, for him and those, le those legal matters you mentioned. So, uh, just cautiousness, I think more or less from, from Vince, Vince always loved Jerry's work and he still does apparently, and he's, as he should. Uh, but you know, I know one thing I, I, I took more ass chewings for Jerry than I did for any other human being alive because Vince would get in my headset and say, God damn it. What's wrong with the king? Fire him up, Jerry. God damn it. Just don't sit there. You know, what the hell? What? What do you want me to do? Was it, should we jump up and start doing jumping jacks? You know, uh, whatever. What are we doing? Stretching? Should we just stretch some more events? I don't know what you want, but he never got on Lawler shit. And I'm sure this very day he never does. 
there's always others out there that could take the wrath. And uh, so I used, to, I used to, I used to tell him that doing a commercial break, I'd take, take her headsets off. I'd look at Well, I just got my ass shoot out for you again, just so you know. <laughs> He'd laugh, giggle. So this is one of those deals. But I, I, we had a lot of fun together in that regard, because we had so many things in common that we didn't always have to talk about wrestling. We didn't always have to talk about. It. So that we had mutual interests, and uh, always, you know, from music to food to sports to women. There's a lot of things that uh, we 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 chatted about on our road trips or when we were hanging out together. So uh, he was just like having a brother. You know, with, you find out, you know, you have this brother you didn't know you had, and then all of a sudden you find out what this brother's interests are, and ironically, they mirror some of your own interests. That kind of, that's kind of how I looked at my situation with Jerry all those years. Well, you talked about taking some shit. Jerry took some shit for King of the Ring 94. It goes down June 19th in Baltimore, Tim and Roddy Piper for 12 and a half minutes. Piper gets the win in a one-star match. It's just, uh, it's a miss, and it's on last. Uh, what did you think of, uh, I mean, this is not Lawler's finest hour in the ring, especially with WWE. Would you agree? No, it, it, uh, that whole show was a train wreck. That's a show that Art Donovan, the great uh, former defensive tackle for the Baltimore Colts, uh, was on the, uh, broadcast team with Moon and, 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 uh, Piper, or excuse me, a uh, savage. Some of the funniest natural television that I ever saw was watching that show. And when they would do the occasional on camera or the announcers would be sitting at ringside, would be shot in a background shot. And you can see the facial expressions, the pained, real facial expressions, uh, etched on the face of monsoon and savage. It was priceless. And I remember watching it. I was in Atlanta. Jan and I were living in Atlanta at that point in time. I was on one of my sabbaticals and I was back down in Atlanta and, uh, I laughed till I cried and, uh, cause it was just that bad. So I'm thinking they're going to call me back. I guarantee you they're going to call me back. And she and I even talked about that a little bit. You know, I said, well, the phone, you know, I was half-assed bullshit. Well, the phone's going to ring tomorrow, honey. Yes, sir. And sure enough, it did. So, uh, it, it was just a, it was a train wreck. So. I don't, I didn't even remember the Lawler. I had forgotten about the Lawler Piper match, to be honest with you. A lot of people I just remember that whole, that, Yeah, I blocked it out. And, but what I do remember was again, the, the feel of the show, the commentary where you have a guy out there that, that doesn't have any product knowledge. Art Donald was known as one of the great storytellers of football stories ever, but he was not a wrestling fan. And you could tell the first sentence he made, now who's this guy? Boy, he's big, you know, that kind of. Stuff that pisses off fans that pay their hard-earned money to watch it on pay-per-view. So uh, that was quickly uh, eradicated. And I remember talking. I didn't talk to Savage much because I we didn't get along that well. But Monsoon would give me chapter and verse of that deal. How much of it, uh, as the boys would say, an abortion it was. So, uh, yeah, I remember that. But I don't remember that match. So maybe that's a good thing, right? Yeah, I wish I could forget, you know, his Survivor Series 94 match. He he missed 93 with some legal troubles. He's back here in 94 for Survivor Series. This time he's teaming with, uh, well, some little people. Queasy, Sleazy, and Cheesy. And they're going to take on Clowns R Us with Doink, Dink, Wink, and Pink. Yeah. <laughs> ne- negative two and a half stars is what it got on the Observer. I guess this is sort of old school, uh, a, a little person match. 
this is uh sort of the beginning if you weren't already aware of the comedy wrestling that law is going to do yeah you're right that's it that was the that was the intro to that that was your that was your little appetizer to the the funny cherry lawler wrestler mode and, and uh it was it was a pretty it was pretty weak uh but in theory it, it was 16 minutes so that's about twice as long as it needed to go sure uh but I, I thought it was just funny the, the queasy, sleazy, and cheesy, all kind of a uncomfortable, heelish little names, no pun intended. Uh, beat the the clowns, a doink, dink, wink, and pink, funny stuff. So you kind of got all the casting uh, situated in, in the naming of the teams. Uh, but it wasn't a. It was what it was supposed to be. A little comedy. Let me out of a serious, of a serious card. He works with Brett at the very first in your house, but really it's not to have a full-blown classic Lawler heart match. It's to sort of ease Brett into an angle with Hakushi. Uh, and then after that, he's, uh, doing some enhancement stuff here, there, but the big match at King of the ring 95 is a kiss my foot match that you referenced earlier with Brett, the Hitman heart, nine minutes and 20 seconds, two and three quarter stars, uh, you know, in hindsight, I'm sure some people watch this for the first time and think it's a little silly. Uh, and, and, and the silliness is not done here. I mean, we're going to pivot straight out of this into, uh, Jerry having to go visit his dentist because Brett's feet were so bad that now they've, they've damaged his teeth. So he's got to go see Isaac Yankum DDS, <laughs> man, you know, I know it's easy for fans on social media to get online and just tear apart creative now, but goddamn, it's not like they were hitting home runs in 95 here. No, it's all subjective. And 95 was a crucial year. We were going through transitions. You see well, what the trend here is that you got Brett who needs to be in all the top programs, but then you got another level that do you really want older guys occupying that many spots at the top? Probably not in theory. The older guys being like Roddy and, and, and the King and, and other, and there are others, we go back and research it, that were, had had their best years behind them more than they had uh, in, in front of them, athletically speaking, just cause their age and so forth, injuries, wear and tear. But man, uh, uh, you know, that's what we were trying. That's what the company was trying to do at that time. And then, and pointing that out, helped me get my talent relations gig. We got to get younger. We're going to die on the vine here. We can't keep re- rehabbing. Uh, re- re- rehabbing, uh, can't keep, uh, repackaging guys like the bulldog. Very good. But I mean, how many reincarnation he's the bulldog He's the British fucking bulldog. All right. Ain't that good enough? Uh, and then you got, uh, you know, Piper and, you know, and the funk was there for a while. We had a lot of great historic hall of fame level guys that you want to be on your team. You just want, don't want them all playing, uh, starting quarterback or your, your tailback or what you want. You want to give that those spotlight positions as best you can to some younger guys that have more years ahead of them to, to monetize your investment. But I think that's where we were in that transitional period. And there was a lot of throwing, throwing shit against the wall to see what was going to stick there in the mid nineties. Let's talk about another innovation Jerry has around this time. It's probably 1995. Whenever he's wrestling enhancement talent, he would actually bring a mic to the ring with him and just talk trash the whole way to the ring. I got to tell you, this, uh, made me a bigger fan of Jerry, the King Lawler. And I think he really got to show off, you know, his mic skills in a unique way 
it added a great, a great, another layer. I was a big fan. What did you think of, uh, of this and whose idea was it to the best of your knowledge? It was either Jerry's or Vince's I'm guessing there may be somebody else there that, that, that how, how wrestling creator goes Conrad is you, should, you know, now with all these amazing podcasts you, you host every week, every day of the week, except Saturday and Sunday that's coming. I'm sure. But nonetheless, uh, it started to get a little bit old for me, but in the beginning when it was new and fresh, like many things in pro wrestling, uh, it worked. Uh, and I thought Jerry did a, did, you know, pulled it off. I mean, he didn't, he didn't miss a beat sometimes. And his, and, and instead of just doing random sound bites, his, his, his in ring stuff during these matches, which is really a, the more entertainment side of pro wrestling than it is the actual physical combat side, obviously, because you're not going to get into a fight with somebody that's supposed to be good and have a mic in your hand, which restricts your striking ability. And also is, uh, uh, you know, awkward, but Jerry did a hell of a job. And I, it sounds like it was an old school Lawler said, Hey Vince, what about this? Vince did it. <laughs> kind of like Bruce last now, <laughs> that kind of deal. And, uh, kidding, but then they, they mutually agreed and then they tried it. So it was, I don't know who else could have pulled it off as well. The only guy I could think of in his heyday of working that could pull it off close to what King did would be uh, Bobby Heenan and Bobby Heenan and Jerry Lawler had so many, uh, the same amazing qualities and skill set, uh, sets that I have ever been around. And I don't know of anybody that I've worked with since the seventies or I saw since the sixties that had more all around skills than the King and the brain without, and they, you kind of stop that list at that point. What a cast of characters the 95 Survivor Series had. Undertaker and Fatu and Henry Godwin and Savio Vega against Jerry Lawler, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, King Mabel, and Isaac Yankum. Uh, but right after that, sometime in early December, maybe late November, Lawler suffers a broken leg in a match with Brad Armstrong in Memphis. His doctor says it's not all that serious and he'd be back in action after the first of the year. But still, now you've got one of your top guys getting injured and, and it's not on, it's not on your programming. Uh, is that just a source of frustration or is there any sort of uh, heat with Vince over an injury like that? I think more frustration than heat, uh, because you knew that Jerry was going to stay mostly involved, uh, in the Memphis promotion because he had helped, you know, he'd helped culture, uh, uh, cultivate it. Uh, and all that stuff alongside uh, Jarrett and, and, and all the other talented people that were in Memphis, but Jarrett Lawler used to book that territory a half a year at a time. So Lawler would have the book for six months and then Jarrett would have the book for six months. It was kind of the theory. Uh, I always thought that was pretty smart. You look back at the, uh, nobody should be the same booker for co co continually, uh, forever. It's just, you run out of ideas. I mean, it's same. look, look at Hollywood. Look at why do shows have a certain shelf life? You know, why they quit making Seinfeld type thing, you know, uh, it's just creative. Sometimes the creative dries up and you got to get a fresh start, fresh perspective. I remember I was talking to Chris this, 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 this morning about, uh, he's a big fan of AEW. He's a displaced fan. Uh, he's a, he grew up as a mid South guy. And, uh, you know, we were talking about how Watts kept things fresh as best he could because Watts always was the, the end. He was always the guy at the end of the, of the equation, but there were a lot of bookers there 
Ernie Ladd, Ken Mantell, Bill Dundee, Dick Slater. Uh, I think Terry Taylor booked a little while. I'm trying to think who else uh, was in there did booking for Cowboy. And, of course, he was there booking. Uh, you know, he, he would over yes or no it. But there was a lot of change there at there. So you got we got a new offensive coordinator every now and then, if that makes any sense to anybody listening as a sports fan. Uh, and so he kept things fresh, kept changing things. And everybody had their own perspective of how they would utilize the talents that we had in place. So uh, uh, I, I think that was a smart thing, this, the, 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 the sharing the booking situation. But Vince knew everything that Jerry was doing. I held Vince went down there and did some stuff with him. It was, it was, uh, it was all up front. And anytime you're in a, in the wrestling business, no matter what people want to say about it being showbiz, this predetermined and all this other bullshit, which is weak, so anyway, it's a weak way to discuss it. I like to be able to sit on the airplane in the first class and somebody say, Hey, look, I know that stuff's fake. So that's how they start the conversation. You know, I want to say, well, I know how your fucking blue blazer and your red tie looks like shit. What are you an insurance guy? What are you in the fucking mortgage business? What the fuck are you? Not going to say that. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But you know what I mean? Sure. It's just, that's just the, they got, they got to make their disclaimer known early. Hey, look, I used to watch it, but I, and I also know it's not all real. Then they, then they let the cat out of the bag, but I do know that those title matches sometimes get carried out of hand. I said, oh yeah, those title matches are big money. They get carried out. Of, they get out of hand. Shit. Come on. Let's talk about, uh, his next angle here. It's, uh, April of 96. Uh, Jerry's going to get a, uh, a chance to, uh, challenge for the world title with Shawn Michaels. Of course, Shawn wins with a super kick. I guess the next really big angle that people will remember though, is his piece of business with the ultimate warrior in June and the warrior was wrestling gold dust and a King of the ring qualifying match. And they end up getting, uh, double count out. Lawler is in Warrior's way when he's trying to get back in the ring. So Warrior's going to blame Lawler for being counted out. And and now Lawler wants to give him a gift to sort of make up for it. And we should mention that in this era, the Ultimate Warrior is back in the company. And part of the deal is he's going to be using the WWF programming to promote his new comic book. And Lawler's angle here is he's going to say that, hey, you didn't pick the right artist. You picked a hack. You should have picked somebody really talented like me. Take a look at this portrait I did of you, and he has it framed with glass and the whole deal. And of course, the story is he's supposed to hit him with the glass frame, the glass bursts. It's a cool spectacle. Jerry would write Problem was, the big tough Ultimate Warrior was scared of the glass breaking over his head. He was afraid he might get cut. I told him I was going to hit him with the backside of the picture, not the glass. It was just a piece of cardboard, and the glass would break out away from him. I assured him I'd done it several times on Memphis TV. No one had ever been cut. And now we're out there on live TV and I'm standing there with this picture in my hand. And here comes the ultimate warrior to the ring wearing a freaking baseball cap. He says he looks so stupid with his hair up under the cap and a great friend of the show. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say his name, but an agent within WWE now says that not only did warrior wear a hat to the ring, he put padding in the top of the hat. He was so concerned about this. What do you remember about this? As Jerry says, angle alert when warriors come into the ring, wearing a hat. Well, you know, people know that listen to the show and I, again, I'll say this to, I guess, to cover my ass, to be honest with you. You don't like to speak ill of the dead, but I mean, uh, or it could be a piece of doo-doo, man. I mean, he really wasn't. 
you can't find a whole lot of people that will go on, on record and say, oh, he was a great guy. He, I loved his destricity and his philosophy on life uh, and all this other stuff. I, I found him to be a con man. I thought he was uh, disingenuous more often than not. I thought he was a, a – he, he got over – look, the ultimate warrior got over because of two people, Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan. Don't bullshit yourself. It wasn't his innate talent. His talent for what? He had a look. He had an artificially enhanced look. Oh, there's other guys. Okay, easy, easy, dirt sheet, keyboard warriors. Take it easy here now. Uh, but his physique was his calling card. It was not his athletic ability or his crowd psychology. He had a very unique promo that you could listen to for about 30 seconds and still not know what the hell he's talking about. And he had a, a nice entrance cause, but normal bad thing there. He normally was blown up, fatigued, out of breath. By the time he sprinted to the ring. So he, he was a pain in the ass to deal with. And I, he was never committed to the business to my, in my, in my, these are only my opinions folks. Uh, but I, I, I had all of him I wanted on that trip to, uh, to LA and we stopped in Phoenix to kiss his ass with, and Vince and Linda were with us. I think Cornette was on that trip. And I just thought that his language he used in front of Linda was absolutely abysmal and uncalled for and showed his ignorance. That he didn't have a better, uh, uh, vocabulary than to do the F bombs and MS and all this other stuff uh, in front of her, just to make his points. It was weak to me. And I did, I lost a lot of respect for him at that point in time. I also remember him getting his head stuck in the two in a stool. Uh, I think it was, it was him or Steen. Anyway, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't do well with cowboy taking to the woodshed a few times because some of his stuff wouldn't break an egg. And it's all about the look, man. It's all about the look and that's it. So. Uh, I feel bad. I said, he's got daughters. I wish them the best. They're beautiful kids. His widow. I think she still, I think she works at WWE. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, I, and I'm, Hey, I'm not, it's just, I, I'm going to be honest on here. And sometimes folks, I want to say shit that it's not going to make all of you happy. All I can do is tell you the truth as I know it. And as I, as I have personally experienced it and Connor, I don't know what your other guys have said when they talk about the warrior. Does anybody talk about it in glowing terms? No. So, you know, I must not be too far off in that, in that, uh, that thing. So, uh, but Lawler, look at the guys he got, look at who they put him with. Uh, Roddy was limited at that time. As far as wrestling, uh, you have Brett had no limitations, but he was a valuable piece of talent that would need to be take, taken care of. At least that's my view. Then you got, uh, uh, then you get the warrior thing and then you get the Jake Roberts thing we'll get into. So a lot of guys that Lawler was being assigned to work with that were not at the top of their game at that point in time in their career. There's no knock. Father Time don't do any jobs, period. Father Time does not do any jobs, period. So uh, I, I, I admire what Jerry tried to do, but you can't shine shit. And that's what, we, that's what Jerry was being booked with on these scenarios. We, the, nobody with any brains could say, well, one thing, Lawler get a great match out of Warrior. Are you kidding me? Really? This is not what well, Hope did. Yeah. What year was it? Look at your calendar. Figure this out. So uh, I, I, uh, I admired for what he tried to do, but it was not good booking Lawler and the Ultimate Warrior at all. They have a match at King of the Ring, three minutes, 50 seconds. Of course, it gets a dud rating. Warrior goes over. But right after this, he's working a pretty memorable feud with Jake Roberts. And at this point, Jake is back on his, well, for lack of a better word, redemption tour within the company. 
He's turned his life around and now we're, we're making angles and storylines out of his real life substance issues that he's had and particular challenges with alcohol. And of course, Jerry has a great time with this. Um, you know, a lot of people would be critical of this and say it was in poor taste. Others thought it was some of Jerry's best work. It's going to pay off at SummerSlam 1996. The match is four minutes and seven seconds. Meltzer didn't like it. And he gave it a dud. I thought it told a great story. Very old school style match. Uh, what did you think of, uh, of his work with, with Jake Roberts and the decision to bring to the forefront and sort of smarten up the audience at home about Jake's substance challenges? I thought we could have been more creative about the storyline, you know, without going into all the detail about, you know, the, the booze and all other uh, illegal drugs that were being ingested by allegedly by Jake. Uh, I didn't think it was the greatest thing in the world there. Uh, cause it didn't, I don't think that anybody had any long-term plans for it to have a happy ending. So you're telling this heartbreaking story, this guy that said, you know, I've been in a troubled home his entire life. Uh, how he's raised, et cetera, being so unique. I did an interview with him that I don't know. Uh, I didn't, I never saw it, but I, it was a video where he and I got down to the nitty gritty talking about his uh, family and, uh, how he was raised and, and has, has parent, the parenting that he encountered. And I, I thought, I don't know how that all made the edit, but boy, it's some, it's some, it's some compelling shit. I can tell you that right now. Uh, but I, I thought we focused on the wrong thing. You know, I think we could tell that story a lot of different ways, and that was not the best way. Uh, don't like to kick somebody when they're down in that regard. He had some issues. He did, and it was well documented. And you know, Dallas Page had helped Jake a lot along the way. Well, we're all aware that Jake's had had struggles, like many of our friends, many of the greats have had uh, troubles. Whether you be in Hollywood or on the football field or wherever, the greats sometimes fall from grace, and they have tr- trouble adjusting. So, but I see he's doing well now. He's on the road. He's doing these shows. I've, I've seen good reviews for them. The Q and A's stage shows he does. He's funny. He's got great stories, but this was not one of his great stories working with Lawler. Let's uh, talk about what Lawler's doing next. Uh, he, unfortunately, he's got to have to work with a greenhorn named Mark Henry. Now, of course, Mark Henry's going to go on to be a hall of famer, no doubt, and a major contributor, but here. He is uh, at the very beginning of his career, September, 1996 in your house, mind games. It sort of is what it is. Uh, Meltzer would say at this point, Henry seems a lot closer to Bill Kazmaier than Ken Patera. Of course, after the match, and we've recently talked about this, Leaf Cassidy, Marty Jannetty, and a young Hunter Hearst Helmsley would all jump on Henry. He cleans house on all of them. And then he throws triple H over the top rope onto both of the rockers. Uh, Meltzer wasn't high on it and said, Henry showed nothing. Of course, we know. Uh, that Mark Henry is sort of growing up and before our eyes as a performer. But if you're going to try to get over a young talent, who better than Jerry, the King Lawler, am I right? Nobody, nobody. And the other thing too, is that I don't think as I, as I recall, look back Conrad, that Lawler and Mark Henry are total, uh, strangers. I, I want to think we sent, you know, I signed Mark Henry and I think we sent him to, uh, he, he got some Memphis time. He, we, he, Mark was an amazing, I went to the bat for him big time. And I still would to this very day. Uh, he's a lovable big bastard. And I think the world of him, except he's just a goddamn Texas Longhorn fan. That irks me about once a year. Uh, but nonetheless, I digress. 
but they were familiar with each other. You want somebody that's going to, that understands their role. We know that the rock made that, uh, that cliche money, know your role. Uh, Lawler knew his role. His role was to get out of there alive, to protect Mark Henry, not take Mark Henry down the road that he had never traveled on before and only do things that Mark could do. And th- at that time they were limited. They're strong men stuff. Uh, he didn't have a lot of crowd psychology, but he had nat- natural charisma did Mark. So, uh, uh, it was a good booking in that regard. I don't like, you know, I, I respect Meltzer immensely and have for 30 plus years, but to say, and I didn't read the whole, the whole sentence, but to say that, you know, Mark showed nothing, uh, or had nothing or whatever, you know, again, he's a rookie or he's really, really young in his career. And it took a while for Mark to find his place, his stride. And that's why you never give up on talents. Folks, if they have a great attitude, they show up for work with their mind, right. Uh, but they're just not quite clicking yet. They're not, they have not connected. You can't shit on them. You can't turn them out to pasture because we have as a system done a good enough job of facilitating the learning curve of this individual. I think that Mark got more out of going to work with, uh, uh, he worked for all the top, top, top Tom Pritchard, Al Snow, uh, Leo Burke. You know, Mark had a lot of really good instructors because we were not going to give up on him, even though I had talents come to me all the time and say, man, that Mark Henry's not going to make it, JR. I don't see what you see in him. I said, well, stay tuned. And luckily, uh, you know, he had a, he was a world champion. He's, he's the hall of fame. He's still doing great work. You know, when you hear him on busted open radio with our friends there. Dave LaGreca and the crew, he's going to do the Saturday show. So Mark Henry has evolved into a real player in the world of pro wrestling, but that would never have happened if we don't, didn't have the belief in him and his heart, well, he's going to do a good job and knowing that we need to protect him, who better to protect Mark, a green Mark Henry than the great hall of fame veteran, Jerry Lawler, Nobody. Yeah. If you needed somebody to look good, you called Jerry Lawler. Something about these survivor series matches, man. Lawler was always in them. And he's in them for big moments, like the one from 1996. Uh, he's going to be teaming with Crush, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, and Goldust. But they're taking on Mark Miro, Barry Windham as the stalker, Jake Roberts, and a very young Rocky Maivia. Uh, what a notable show this is. Of course, it's the debut of The Rock. It goes two stars. Uh, once again, if you're trying to get over a new guy, Jerry Lawler can't be far away. Uh, he's a common denominator because he's the rudder in the water that you need. You need leadership in the ring with these young guys. I said this many, many times. Uh, we were blessed at WWE to first of all, sign Dwayne Johnson. Uh, you know, uh, I've told this story in a lot of our shows. I've written about it. You know, it I, that meeting that I had with, uh, with Dwayne, uh, where we had the, the, uh, black beans and chicken and, and yellow rice. And every woman in the building was wanting to come by and give us something to drink. And some of them didn't even work there. They just, they just looked at him. He had, he had a tank top on. It would not have been the same if I had my tank top on. I can tell you that right now, by God, uh, they would have been, the building would have been emptied out period. He just looked like a God. And so, uh, but he was our, he, he was going to be the next hit guy. We, I felt it from the very beginning and, uh, he didn't let anybody down. So here's the deal. We get, we finally get him. After all the great training, working with all these instructors, going to, and he also worked a lot in Memphis as Flex Cavana. I didn't give him that name, by the way, uh, quite frankly. I don't know who did that one. That was, nobody did me any favors on that deal, but he's, he worked through it. 
And uh, all of a sudden, Conrad, he's there on the main roster, and he's in a match for the Survivor Series. And there I am gushing about him on the commentary, saying, "There's a blue chipper right there." And I'm now at the, that was a line fed to me by somebody because Vince is sitting beside me. It was just my gut. This son of a bitch is going to be special, and boy was he and is he. So uh, we wanted to protect that what we perceive to be a pristine investment and future in this one cat named Rocky Maivia. And if you want him to be in there to look good, to work his spots, so well, you say, well, how do you keep him protected? Because you don't let him do a lot of things with anybody but Lawler. And if they are, they're basically, uh, he's on the offense giving bumps. So it was a, it was a good booking. And we found out, you know, right away, the crowd, for whatever reason, they spit him back at us because I guess we pushed him too hard. So it tells you, you can't do this. You can't just go stuff things down people's throat. Uh, it, even today it don't work. So, uh, yeah, it was, we had to take care of the rock and he wasn't even the rock then he was Rocky. Well, right after this, or so it, so it seems he's in another big angle this time. He's going to be tasked with taking on ECW. Um, there's going to be a bit of a, an on-air feud with Jerry Lawler and Paul Heyman. And, um, this is good stuff. You know, he's, he's out here sort of roasting ECW saying that, you know, the ECW arena should have been made out of toilet paper because everything in it's shit. And it's extremely <laughs> crappy wrestling and really good stuff behind the scenes. What was the relationship like with Paul Heyman and, and Jerry Lawler here? Uh, it was controlled animosity. I don't think either guy liked the other very much. Why do you I think, think they is? both respected each other's abilities? as professionals, because they both knew how good the other was at doing their job. You'd have to be a recluse and have your head up your ass, not to see that both of them were, were highly skilled, but just the, they just didn't get along culturally, personally. You know, we did this, one of those shows on the WWE network where we talked about, uh, things that happened in the ring. And I asked Lawler, he, he broke Paul Heyman's jaw. And I asked him point blank. Did you, was it an accident or did you do it on purpose? I did it on purpose, says Lawler. So there's always some heat there, and and it generally is over. The, it's one of the two C's. I don't know which one it is. So I can promise you, if Heyman and Lawler did not exist well in that era, it was because of one of the two C's, cash or creative. But uh, they also had a lot in common in the fact that they could they could make you love them or hate them uh, just by what they said and how they said it. So they were they were highly skilled both in, in both in all the right areas, but. They just, and maybe it's the fact that Heyman's a, you know, from, uh, from, uh, Scarsdale and, you know, Westchester County, New York, you know, father was very successful and affluent attorney and Lawler was raised in more of a blue collar atmosphere growing up in Memphis, become the local hero there. They had different backgrounds, they had different, different routes to get where they're going. So they, they just didn't, there was just no commonality there other than some wrestling stuff. And some of the wrestling stuff then was tainted because of cash and creative. Let's talk a little bit about what he's doing next. He's going to be put into a bit of a feud with gold dust and he's going to blur the lines here in a couple of promos where he's talking about the man behind the character, Dustin Rhodes, and he's going to be very critical of the gold dust character saying some very nice, not, I mean, not so nice things and doing the same about at the time, Dustin's wife, and even mentioning his daughter way, way, way over the top. I assume that Jerry's not going into business for himself. All of these remarks are approved ahead of time. 
I think probably generally, yes. Uh, but he, Jerry's like a lot of great performers that's doing uh, extemporaneous speaking. They can't do the same line the same way again and again. Right. Uh, so I think that's kind of where he is on that. I think it was just, it's a lot of instinctual stuff that always affected our pre-gaming. You know, when we started working together, uh, you know, uh, just two of us. And I thought that was the best incarnation of J.R. The King was a two man team on raw. Uh, I learned early on, like in about the first few weeks that he detested prep work. So I come with all my highlight stuff and all my, my little, you know, red highlighter, the orange highlighter meant this and yellow, you know, I overthought it, but it helped me. But then when I wanted to share what I was using to help me, it wasn't, uh, what he wanted. It didn't work for him. So we stopped pregaming and I would just give him the high spots that I was aware of because all you had to do is uh, give him that. That's how Dusty Rhodes used to work with me on TV. He knew I knew enough to not screw it up. So he'd give me just the basic, basic nibbles of where he's headed. So I could fill in the blanks with my own feelings and my own timing. And, and, uh, that was Jerry. Again, my job was as a point guard, the point got us on the segment and off the, in the segment and off the segment, off the commercial break, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a certain amount of symmetry there that has to be in place. We're trying to do that now with our three man team in AEW with Excalibur and Tony. We're still a work in progress, but we're damn sure we're getting there. It's just taking some time for, it's always going to take time, but Jerry was best unprepared in that regard. Now he was prepared. He knew who the baby faces were, the heels were, he knew what the issues were. He knew the titles, who the champions were, what this match is about. But the but past that he didn't want to know anything else. And I accepted the same theory that, you know, people ask all the time, did you know Foley's getting thrown off the hell in a cell? No, I didn't know. Cause we didn't, Jerry and I were not, uh, incessant on you telling us everything that's going to happen. We felt like that we could figure it out. We've kept it up with the program. We never, you never get away from it. You're there. You do it live every week. So how the hell could you get away from it? So you're never going to be detached, but then allow our instincts to take over. If our instincts are good, we'll give you a great narrative to your, or great lyric to your music. If it's not, guess what? We, we, we're out of there. So, uh, for many, many years we were, we were solid and that was our, that was our spot. And I, that was my, the happiest time of my career, uh, thus far was work with the King on live TV. When we were fighting to compete and get back in our, in the number one spot, best, best competitive time, most challenging time, uh, giving talents and opportunity, bringing new guys into business and giving them the ball. Look at all the guys we facilitated during that era. When he and I are on the air together, their, their chance to get on TV, uh, or when they got on TV to put them over and f- position them correctly. I mean, it goes, the list goes on and on Conrad of the guys that were made on Monday night raw during that era that are still, that are rich now, they're hall of fame bound now, or if they're not already in it and they're made men and women, I, I love that. That's the greatest confidence that, that I could have ever had in my career was that. Of course we know, uh, Lawler's going to have a busy 1997, perhaps no better than early June, where he's going to show up at the ECW arena and just create chaos after the lights go off. And then when they come back, Jerry's in the ring and man, it's riotous here. And then the next day he's on pay-per-view taking on mankind for the King of the ring. Of course, mankind gets the win. I think this is the first time Jerry was actually involved in the King of the ring in three quarters, three quarters, the next night on raw though. Lawler is going to bring Van Dam to ringside. 
Uh, and we're going to continue the ECW angle with, uh, Scorpio. And there's going to be some schmas here with, with Paulie and, um, it's just really well booked the old ECW thing. And it's going to culminate as we know with, uh, a pay-per-view appearance, uh, for hardcore homecoming, Jerry Lawler working with Tommy dreamer. Uh, what do you remember about Lawler telling you his experience with all this ECW stuff was, because this is something that, you know, fans who were watching at the time really believed in, you know, they thought, okay, well, this is whatever. And that's whatever, but man, Lawler really hates these guys and they really hate Lawler. And some of that is because the ECW hardcores were so behind Paul Heyman, man, Jerry Lawler had white hot heat to that audience. Yeah, big time. The real organic, uh, legitimate heat. It's, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Lawler's resistance to uh, ECW was, I think, more twofold. First of all, I don't think it had, he had any grudges against any of their talents because I doubt very seriously and all due respect that he had a relationship with hardly any talent on the roster other than the occasional Terry Funk coming in or whatever like that. Uh, but the presentation of pro wrestling, much like it has been the last couple of years, it, it continues to e- evolve. Uh, and I think that's what Lawler was resisting at that time, you know, it publicly, you know, this is junk and it's, 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 it is crappy and it's all chairs and tables and fluorescent lights and all these other things. There's not wrestling. It's just a stunt show using, uh, uh, gimmicks. So he, he sold that. That was his, that was his platform. And of course that flew rough in the face of the, the diehard us against the world fans at ECW that Heyman did an amazing job of manipulating and uh, leading to where he wanted to go. So I, I, I liked, uh, I liked the fact that, uh, that we did that angle. I think it added some freshness to what we were doing. It exposed some really good deserving talents, uh, more of a platform to do their thing. And I took it that as an opportunity to get to know some of these cats. And then I hired them, uh, a lot of them. And because they were ready, they were hungry and they, they had paid their dues for, for, for damn sure. And, uh, they needed to make some cash. And so we were there and we provide that opportunity. So I, I, I think that, uh, Lawler, Lawler stood for everything that ECW's fan base and their brand did not. He was the old guard, the establishment, and they wanted new, new innovations, new things going on, maybe less selling, uh, maybe more sensationalistic spots and some spots that they were doing that should have probably in all reality been finishes were high spots. And some old school guys thought that was, uh, not the way to, to steer the vote. So I, but he, he, I, I just, here's the deal as a wrestling fan, those are some of the most fun shows those ECW, WWE shows, uh, pay-per-views that I think that I was there. I never got to be a part of any of them because that was Joey Styles deal. And I, which I fully applaud and love Joe's work and still do. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's fun to watch as a fan. It's fun to watch. And one of the reasons they were fun to watch because he had a heel that was God, like you said, Conrad white hot. Do we have any heels that are white hot today? Now I'll tell you. This is going to sound well. He's self-serving. He's kissing Tony Khan's ass. Chris Jericho is probably the best heel in wrestling right now. Well, Cody's probably the most over babyface for sure. I mean, they've told some great stories with with Jericho and with Cody. 
in terms of making one very, very hated, even though, you know, he's still funny. And I know how you feel about that, but Cody, the most sympathetic baby face in the game right now. Yeah. And I, I want to clarify one thing here, Conrad, about the funny thing. Here's what I'm saying, folks. I am not, I love comedy. I love to laugh. I love to make people laugh. I love to have fun. I really truly do sort of God, but I find it challenging to try to incorporate comedy at the wrong time. So when you got the audience in the palm of your hand and you're leading them exactly where you want to go as an antagonist, it's hard to be, it's hard to dislike an antagonist enough. If he or she is making me laugh more often than not. So if the comedy is a sidebar, the comedy is an add on an addendum. I'm cool with that. But when it, when we try to write it into show, and overscript it. So you, you got to, you got to, you know, we're 30 seconds in and I'm doing a comedy spot or a bit, then I'm going to do my thing. And then before I get my clothes and my promo, I'm going to do another comedy line or two. Then if you're entertaining me, why should I not, why should I like, not like you? If you're making me laugh and you're giving me a pleasure and what you're saying is funny and entertaining, what is the reason then that I should dislike you as a villain? It's hard. It's hard to, 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 to differentiate. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about with that deal. But Lawler was really good at Lawler's great at, at that because he knew timing and how to and do crowd psychology. But it's a very delicate line that you walk. But I think Jericho right now is the best wrestling villain, pro wrestling villain in the business. That's just and yeah, I'm biased. I work his matches every week that he wrestles, and I have great respect for him. But so I am biased. I'm going to admit it. But I do think he. If he's not the best, you got to prove to me who's better. Something Lawler was not the best at was hitting dudes in the ball sack with canes. We should mention that, uh, on the way to this big match with Tommy dreamer, he has, a uh, another one of these appearances at the arena. That's a surprise. He takes Sandman's cane, wax Tommy between the legs, errant shot. The pain is so excruciating. Tommy actually passes out for a moment after the show. He has to have uh, one of his testicles drained because it had swollen up something serious. But of course, Tommy gets his revenge at hardcore, hardcore homecoming, the second pay-per-view from ECW, and that essentially ends the ECW WWE feud. Uh, but there is going to be a feud in the courtroom of brewing, uh, allegedly there is a lawsuit involved against Jerry Lawler and his partner, Larry Burton. Um, and this is coming from Mark Silker, who is, uh, somebody who was trying to buy out the USWA. This is going to be a, a mess based on what the guys thought they were buying and then what they actually bought. And this is always sort of stuck out as, I don't know, exhibit a of why buying a territory, you know, when guys were buying territories in the eighties was maybe a little bit of fool's gold. What say you big time fool's gold, a uh, big time. What are you buying? Right. A, a tape library. And how haphazard many of these territories were with their inventory, their tape library, uh, how they uh, uh, accounted for an, uh, and the authenticity of the intellectual property. You know, do you really own this? Or is it all free and clear? Have the talents that appeared on here signed off? You know, uh, all these appearances. It was, a, it was not a well-run business because a lot of those guys, those big ego owners and promoters and stuff, never thought they were going to go out of business. So they didn't, they didn't prepare for it. You know, if you got a few of them did cowboy did Paul Bosch did, 
uh, I think that the Von Erichs did, but they're all old school people. And as you went along and farther on, it just, uh, it, younger, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't resonate. So, uh, I thought it was a fool's gold deal. Cause I don't know what the hell you're buying other than that library There's a library off free and clear has been cataloged, has been organized. Well, I knew most of those answers, probably not quite honestly. So I thought that, that the guy was, uh, I thought the guy was a, a fool's gold is a, is a nice, polite way of putting it. Of course, the next big thing that Lawler's going to be involved in is a storyline with Al Snow, who's coming home from his stint with ECW. And eventually, as you know, he's got the head with him. His son, Brian Christopher, is going to get a bottle of uh, head and shoulder shampoo and stick it with the head and then pin it because, you know, the head doesn't have shoulders. He needed head and shoulders. They're not. Yeah, 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 yeah. Some of that comedy you were talking about earlier. Here it is again. We should mention yep. 1999, big year for Jerry Lawler. The movie Man on the Moon comes out. There's even a couple of great documentaries about this. Of course, it's the story of Andy Kaufman. Uh, Lawler was famous for having a tremendous interaction and, and feud with him in the early 80s, including a real special hit on David Letterman's show that people are still talking about. This is way before things went viral, but if going viral was a thing, that would have been a thing back for this. Uh, talk to me a little bit about his experience on, on working with, uh, Jim Carrey, making this movie man on the moon. Well, uh, Lawler got the approval from Vince to go to be a part of it, you know, so he could miss some things we had to. And then, uh, uh, Ironically, Larry Burton was a big, was a instrumental part of that process. I'm not so sure how much he, uh, I think he basically did Lawler's deal. And because to make the, uh, the Andy Kaufman story, man, on the moon starring Jim Carrey, uh, you need a Jerry, you need a Jerry Lawler. I mean, it's kind of key. It's kind of important. So, uh, Jerry, uh, got the role and then. They needed to hire some other folks. And so they got Lance Russell and I thought, well, Lance is going to be, that'd be great. You know, cause that, that was his role. He was the guy. And then they hired me. Thanks to Larry Burton. And, uh, I got Lance's I, Lance was a ring announcer in the movie. He was also the ring announcer more often than not at, in Memphis at the Coliseum during that era. And he also did play by play. So I did the play by play and, 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 uh, and Lance to the ring announcing, but we spent three or four gr- glorious days in LA with our wives and uh, great ho- hospitality. And, and, uh, uh, Burton had this deal. I, I never understood it. It's always kind of a head scratcher with, uh, Morton's steakhouses. And he was treated like a King at Morton's. He can get in any Morton you want to go to. There's no wait for him. It was just absolutely amazing. So I don't know what he, what kind of deal he had with Morton's, but it was uh, really unique. But Larry was a little bit shady in my view. Uh, he was one of those guys that would talk a mile a minute and not look you in the eye. And, uh, Conrad, we both have met a lot of people in wrestling that way. You know, they ain't going to gain no eye contact cause they know you, they know, you know, they're lying to your ass. Right. So Larry was a kind of a shady hustler, entrepreneurial kind of a guy. And, uh, I never really trusted him. Quite frankly, he was likable enough to be around at times, but, uh, he was just, there are too many unanswered questions about his background, you know, and I know he had two or three different names. You know, I used to kid him about all the time. Now, what's your name today? Are you Larry Bertman, Larry Bergman, Larry, you know, whatever. 
He had like three aliases. So, uh, as I recall, so he, he was a different cat, but he was the one that got us that, that, that movie deal. And, and, uh, you know, I was, Milos Foreman was the director. He's an Oscar winner. Uh, amazing, amazing. Uh, I learned so much on that set, watching those guys work. And, uh, so I got my little role then Milos liked my work enough that he brought me back for the, the following week for those scenes that I shot where I was on camera doing commentary. And there was like 30 people there. So it, was a, it looked like we were still back in the Olympic Auditorium, but we were in a little sound studio. So I got a nice little thing out of that. I uh, went to the uh, went to the New York premiere with Jerry Seinfeld and a bunch of other people my wife loved. I did too. I'm not discounting. But then when they had the big premiere in uh, L.A., the, the, the big Mac Daddy premiere, uh, Jan had to represent the family because Vince would not let me off work. Uh, cause Jerry was going to go, so he couldn't let us both off raw. So I stayed back and worked and everybody else went to the premiere in LA. Jerry is, I think his wife, Stacy was that time and uh, Jan, they're all buddies. And we went to their wedding and, you know, we're friends. And so I missed not going there, but at least, you know, Jan got to go. After the, uh, the movie situation is, is in hand and, and we've got that under our belt. We're going to have a bit of a feud with Taz, which sort of seems to come out of nowhere in the summer of 2000. He's going to become a baby face. I guess at this point, Taz is starting to bully you and Jerry's going to come to your aid. They, they actually have a match at SummerSlam 2000. Uh, this is, uh, I don't know. Interesting because Taz has not bled a lot in his, uh, his career, but he is going to, in this match. And so is your hand because you're going to get up and smash a glass jar of candy on Taz's head. I don't think I've ever seen a candy jar on the announcer's desk before or after this. So it was kind of obvious <laughs> what was coming, but yeah. what do you remember about, uh, Lawler coming to defend your honor and this feud with Taz and this fucking candy jar? Yeah. We said earlier, you know, Jerry kept evolving his role, not to get stale and how he, how he presented himself on television. And one of those, uh, changes was him becoming from a villain antagonist to a, a protagonist and somewhat of an ally, to good old JR, uh, cause we've been together for so long and we've been through the thicks and thins and so forth and so on. So it kind of made sense, kind of was realistic in that regard. Uh, I don't know whose idea that the Taz thing was, to be honest with you. I didn't have a problem with it. I mean, you know, I, I signed Taz with a great deal of anticipation and, uh, I thought he was, you know, we've got a sleeper there. It's just the pushback on Taz was always the stupidest fucking reason of all is, he, you know, well, he, he's, he's too short. And I, and I, I always said about the guys, the guys that say that the guys that say that Taz was too short had never had their ass beat by a smaller guy. And that happens every day. If you wonder, like here at OU. We got a, a wrestling program, have had a great amateur wrestling program here for years. And the football players, the D linemen, the offensive linemen do not want to screw with the wrestlers. No matter if the wrestlers are 130 pounds or 145 pounds, whatever it may be, you don't want to get your ass embarrassed by one of these little bulldogs that will eat your ass up because they know how to do it. So I always thought that was Taz got a bad hand on that deal. Of course, I was stood up for him because I hired him and I recruited him and I thought he was going to be, he could be very, very special. And, uh, but the, we thought that same thing. And so the same way that, uh, 
Conrad, that all these other cats from Book of Lawler, we go back and talk about the, the rock, right? And all these other dudes that we want to protect Mark Henry. Well, Taz was a guy that we want to, he didn't need to protect him because he was green. He needed to protect him because he was new to our audience. And we want to make sure they saw the side of Taz that we were trying to present who could do that even better than Lawler. Nobody. So that's how that worked out. And they incorporated me in it just as a, basically as a, uh, you know, a, a conduit to get those two guys to do their thing. And, uh, so it was a nice little angle, I guess it's it, it, of all the angles I did were in the physical side, uh, probably the, probably the, 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 my favorite, because I didn't get overexposed of what I couldn't do. And there's not much I could do in the ring that were to me was passable, at least within my eyes. So, uh, but I, I liked that. I didn't have a problem with that at all. And it got Taz on the, on the radar and you know, it, it looked like it was going to work. And then all of a sudden he got, I think he got hurt. If I'm not mistaken. So it just, it was a, but it wasn't a bad idea. I, I and, and look, it made Jerry every time, anytime Jerry, when Jerry got to TV, here's the things he did. He would, would all, both of us would locate catering. would find out how many on cameras we had. And then if Lawler was wrestling, it added a different wrinkle and element to that night's show. Uh, and so, and if, and if the third element was in place, he was extremely happy because there's not any way that he will ever tell you, cause it's not true that he liked announcing as good as he liked wrestling. It just isn't true. And he's, he said that many, many times he'd rather work. That's why he wrestles between big crowds, little crowds, whatever on the weekends. BFW halls, high school gyms, whatever. He just likes performing in his, his art. And that's, uh, and that ain't going to change. I think I'm not going to, even though this is his 70th birthday week, God bless him. We got to love him. He'll be, he'll be still be, he'll be taking bookings until somebody quits booking him. That's the end of that story. Well, one of the bookings he took that maybe wasn't the best fit, the XFL in 2001, he's brought in to be a commentator. And, uh, he says he agrees to do it, even though we admits he never wanted to commentate or announce for the XFL and he even sort of tongue in cheek admits he didn't know a ton about the sport, but either Kevin Dunn or Vince McMahon asked him to do so. So here he is. And, uh, he's doing his typical Jerry Lawler routine. Like when I'm around the cheerleaders, I like to use the terms tight end and wide receiver. <laughs> Uh, what'd you think of, of Lawler and, and the idea of him doing football commentary? Well, first of all, he knows football better than he wants to let it on because he's a big Cleveland Brown fan. Of course. And, uh, I mean, die hard. So he knows more about football than he would probably want to, to let on. Uh, first of all, secondly, uh, Lawler and I were considered local or accessible. I lived in, in, in Connecticut at that time. So we used the production facility at 120 Hamilton to do the auditions for all the football people, the play-by-play guys and the color guys that uh, WWE was all uh, auditioning for the XFL. Uh, I did uh, tons of interviews with different guys that were uh, color guys, and I did the play-by-play on the on the demos. And then Lawler did the same thing. Only his role was a color analyst. With a, with a variety of play-by-play guys that they were auditioning. At the end of the day, uh, when the conversation came down to, okay, we did all the auditions, all the Hayes and Barn, who do we like? And Dick Eversole, who was the president of NBC Sports at that time, says, well, to be honest with you, Vince, 
our consensus is, is that we need to use Jr. and a King. They're good. They're really good. They have great chemistry and they both love the game and they understand it. And so, uh, that decision was made on that first week of the XFL to put Lawler, myself and Jonathan coachman together at a game in Orlando that became the a game after the original, uh, a game with Vascursion and Ventura, uh, got a little out of hand. So, but the money was never great. I did it because I love the game. I wanted, I always wanted to fulfill a dream as a bucket list. Conrad, we've made $1,500 a game for this thing. Oh my. Yeah. I'm serious. 1500 bucks a game. Now we got, you know, they played our T and E and all that good stuff, obviously, but $1,500 was not big payday money here. It wasn't a big deal. Now all that's while Vin, everybody's talking about Ventura making a million. So, you know, Ventura's making a million for a little part of a season of football and which is great. Good for him. You know, he got a, he got a hell of a deal, but the rest of us didn't do it for the money. And at that point, when Lawler saw that the 1500 is all we're ever going to get, it took another day away. He could make more money than that going to do an independent wrestling show in Tupelo. Sure. Or so. so, uh, that's, that's how that went down. And, and so they, we got the chance to do it. And, but I knew that, uh, when it stopped being fun for him and travel for anybody folks, I'm telling you, you know, I love going to, to or leaving my house on Tuesdays and going to the city that we're going to, do, uh, AEW on TNT. But boy, the travel is a miserable existence. It really is. I'm doing it 52 times a year. So you just got to plan for it. You got to be prepared for it. And to add more travel to the already weekly travel we already had, uh, was more than Jerry wanted to invest for $1,500. So that's how that, uh, that's how that worked out. But if we'd have worked the whole season together, it would have been, you know, but I, it was bounced back and forth and all this stuff. It's just, and then he was perfect what they wanted. It, it, that's not going to be the new XFL as I understand it, but we had a little vaudeville, a little carny type stuff on our uh, XFL broadcast. And it was not a smart way of going. It was not a good direction. And so, but I, I uh, look, Jerry can, Jerry's a storyteller, Conrad. He can tell a story about anything. If you give him any preparation time to watch a few things or read a little bit of his own, his own timing, he can tell a story about any entity that you can put on TV monitor. That's how good he is. And so the football, him being decent or good at football was not a surprise, but, uh, him burning out with the additional travel for no money, uh, that's what got him. And that's what he, that's why he stopped doing it. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, let's talk about, um, and I can't believe this is, uh, this is happening, but we're still wrestling in 2001. Feels like the task thing was the swan song, but man, Lawler on TV continues. And it happens at uh, the right to censor angle for No Way Out in February of 2001. This is right at the end of WCW, maybe a month prior. Stevie Richards is going to pin Jerry Lawler. And the steps were if Lawler wins, Cat gets to strip. And if Richards wins, Cat has to join the RTC. Of course, afterwards, RTC puts Cap in a burlap sack and takes her away, star and a half. But that's not the big news. The big news is later that same month, Stacy Carter is released by the company. I think it happens on February 27th. Meltzer would say, which was strange because it's right in the middle of an angle where they're doing with her being kidnapped. And upon hearing the news, Lawler quit the company in protest. According to the reports, Lawler was at the production meeting going over the show until 2 PM that afternoon, then left. And when he came back at four, Ross told him they had to release Carter. 
Lawler said he told Ross and McMahon that if she was let go, he would quit and they didn't change their decision and he left. So this has been one of the biggest stories of Lawler's career. You were there. You're very close to the situation. You're in a bad spot as both your job and your friend are sort of all intertwined here. What do you remember about this bad day in February? Well, you know, here's the thing about it. And I, maybe somebody will say, well, JR sometimes had relationships with the guys on the talent roster that were uh, unhealthy because he was too close to some of them. I'll take my chances on that, quite frankly. And, And those that think that may have a point to some degree. But I'll take my chances on that deal. Saying it's like I had with I've had with Austin and and other guys. There's a lot of them that I have great personal relationships with. But you know Jerry and Stacy, uh, I just thought that they were a great couple. You know Jan and I went to their wedding in uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, that uh, I think Charles Barkley actually paid for their wedding. Uh, so Charles is a big friend of Jr. that came back in those days, and we had a dinner with Charles after a, a Phoenix Raw. And the, their mar- their wedding came up in conversation, and Charles volunteered to pay for the wedding. And of course, old Jerry, all oh, right, <laughs> I'm going to save a couple of bucks here. So we, you know, we were friends with them on a personal level outside of wrestling. So uh, the issue was is that, uh, as I remember it, because I had never had one person come to me and say, "Man, Jr., you got to talk to Stacy." She's just busting our balls. It's just, she can't, you can't work with her and she knows the better way to do everything. And she's, she's got a little taste of the, of the spotlight. Now she's just curious. She's being carried away by it type thing, whatever, nothing. It just, a bitch came out of the, out of the blue and said, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting too many, I'm getting too many complaints about Stacy and I'm not going to tolerate it. And I want you to let her go today. And what, boom, it's that quick. So I didn't have any, I, I try, I tried to discuss it. Obviously I did, I did discuss it, but basically some of the producers, writers, whatever there, there's, I think they, they were the culprit in this matter because for whatever reason, she was challenging their authority or their decision-making or their creativity or whatever. Anyway, that was the reason I was given. And so, uh, that's what we, we, I had to do that and. I told Jerry, I said, you know, look, I, I, I feel bad about this deal. I don't agree with the decision. I don't do that then, then I don't agree with it now, but that's the marching orders I got from the headquarters. So what do you get? You're a soldier. You follow your down orders. You take the guy's money. You do what he says. So I did. And I even told Jerry, I said, you know, maybe, uh, you want to tell her, well, I'll tell her, don't get me wrong, but maybe it comes easier from you. I don't know. I want to make this as easy for both of you as I possibly can. Tell me how I can help do that. So I think he told her and, uh, as I recall, so that's kind of how that deal worked. And I, I, I thought he might want to take a few time, a few days off to show support for her, but I didn't know he was going to quit altogether and it would have, but for Vince, it wouldn't have mattered anyway. You know, I think probably Vince probably thinking farther ahead than I and decided, you know, if he, if he bolts, he bolts. So that's where we are. So that's, that's kind of how that deal went down. It was a bad day. I always, I think the world Stacy today, she's a, she's got, she does a lot of stuff with, uh, rescue animals and she got a hair salon and a, a spa type thing in Dallas, a Carter hair, Stacy Carter. So she does a good job in her, in her post wrestling life. She separated herself from it to her own benefit and her own mental health, I think, 
but she never really deserved to get canned in my view. And I'm again, I may be over biased. I may be wrong, but I always thought that she got kind of a, a raw deal on that thing. Nobody can argue that, uh, he's in a bad spot and unfortunately the relationship doesn't, uh, work out, uh, eventually, um, that marriage would, would come to an end. What can you tell us about his relationship with Stacy? We haven't talked a lot about Stacy on this show, but she's a big part of his life here for a while. And, and you were there for the beginning, the middle and the end. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, the, the story goes is that, uh, uh I believe Stacy's mother was, uh, maybe dating a member of Jerry's softball team. And so then Stacy, the young teenage daughter, I'm guessing 17, 18 years old in that neighborhood would come with her mom to the softball games. And of course the King has that, that, uh, that great eye for talent. And, uh, they, they connected and started seeing each other. And one thing led to the next. And then she's living with him. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, she's living with him when I met him. Uh, and then she's, uh, then they marry. And that's, and then we, like I said, we went to the wedding in, in Vegas. Uh, I seen a minute ago, I, I thought, uh, that she, that, that Stacy at that time was the perfect mate for Jerry. She was, she was younger. He liked that. She was beautiful. Uh, had a lot of, a lot of sexuality. She was a wonderful laugh and they both liked to laugh and, and, and they, and in the movies and do things that they, they seem to have a lot of common ground in. So I really believe, man, this is one of those wrestling relationships that's going to be it's going to be a long time, you know, it's going to be everlasting. Well, unfortunately, like so many wrestling relationships, they go south for whatever reason. And sometimes those reasons for going south is that the, 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 the other person in the wedding in the, in the marriage, I should say, want to be on TV. They want to be famous. They want to make more money and make some money. And so all of a sudden, you know, she's being used in Memphis a little bit as a TV character. And, you know, playing herself basically. And then you got, uh, all of a sudden she's coming with Jerry to TV. She's got those beautiful blue eyes. She's adorable. She's smart to the business. And so all of a sudden, you know, we're, she fit the bill for all the, the, the sexiness and the, and the, the look and all that stuff, uh, for, uh, the, the, the those divas at that time were, were doing. So it was just a, I, I thought it was a magical deal and, and I, and I, just thought they were a great couple together. It just, you know, time goes on and people grow apart as they say. And I remember, you know, after Stacy, I think his next girlfriend was sitting at ringside in Providence at a show at a raw. And he and her made contact again, made eye contact. And so it's supposed to be a goddamn hypnotist. I don't know what the hell he is, but he locked on and, uh, all of a sudden had one of the security guys have exchanged numbers. And the next thing I know, the girl he, that was sitting in ringside in Providence at raw is living with him. So, you know, he don't, he don't, uh, let any grass grow under his feet. Uh, as I say on, my, on the show, sometimes our tomorrows aren't guaranteed Conrad. So the King was not burning any daylight. So, but I thought he and Stacey were perfect. I really did. I thought they were a great couple and, and, uh, but you know, one of those deals, man, just at the end of the day, just the, the relationship dissolved and it's too bad. I, they were one of my favorite wrestling couples, quite frankly. And, at that time. And, you know, things changed. I get it. Things have changed, but, uh, and now he's, 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 he's seeing Lauren and they're, they're happy seeming to me. 
And, uh, you know, she's like, Lauren's probably 30, 31. And she's got a beautiful son. He just had a birthday this week. Uh, good kid, big sports fan. And he's right. And Jerry and him is saying that wheelhouse. Jerry can be to this kid what he didn't have the time or take the time to be to his other sons. I think that's great. So, you know, he's just that he's that he, he does. I think Jerry's biggest issue with the women is just, he didn't, he's like me in a lot of ways. We don't want to be alone. And I said, Oh, poor Jr. Ain't no poor Jr. My fat ass. I get that folks. But as a human being, you want companionship. And I think Jerry's probably really in that, uh, that world because he's here in Oklahoma. I stay kind of low key. Jerry's involved in all kinds of stuff. You know, the thing he did on the college game the other day was great for him. Driving his Batmobile down, uh, or having his, his, uh, I think that was, uh, actually Lauren's father driving that car. So he's got a different lifestyle, Conrad. He's a different cat. I told him, I said, sometimes that's a few uh, people ask me, what's it like to work with the King? I said, well, he's brilliant. You stay on your toes, but it's, sometimes it's like working with Larry Flint, the, the owner of Hustler magazine. He's just, he, ha he has an insatiable desire to, uh, be social. And I find that that quality alone is going to keep him alive for a long time to come. Uh, uh, the relationship would end the, the relationship with WWE ends February 27th. And then, uh, Stacy decides, uh, to move on in, uh, first of July. So during that little stretch there, March, April, May, June, Jerry is quite busy. He makes some appearances on the man cow radio show, really stirs things up for Bruce Pritchard and Stephanie McMahon. He is really taken to his website. He's getting up to 60,000 hits a day there. He's telling his story, keeping, you know, in front of fans. And he's even posting email addresses of yourself and Bruce Pritchard and others saying, Hey, if you wish I was still on TV, let these people know. And supposedly one of the unintended consequences is some of those fans sent you some not so nice things. Yeah. What was that? I don't remember that. Well, it was during the time he was on hiatus, well, you know, that's the oh, like blaming me for it. Yeah. I think he was saying, Hey, if you want me to be back on TV and let the, let these folks know and it's a questionable decision to say the least, but either way, not too terribly long after the whole cat thing comes to a head in real life, he gets a call. Would he be interested in coming back? And one of the suggestions that's made is maybe he should call Bruce Pritchard and try to mend fences because he was not very polite to Bruce on, on the man cow show. And then of course, once he comes back to uh, raw in, in Nashville and Memphis, he gets a call from you that says, Hey, you ought to come by. Everybody'd love to see you. They miss you. And he comes in and it probably just feels like he was never gone. Right? Yeah. No, it, that all it was. He's just, he's just absent for a few days. <laughs> Seemingly he was never not a part of the team, at least, uh, you know, in, in spirit. So, you know, I, I have that sometimes you just gotta, you, 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 you can't do all the protocol and all the bullshit and maintain your position for leverage, leverage position for negotiations and all that stuff. Sometimes we as administrators, especially in this, in that world need to do what's right. And, uh, I thought that he should come by because he was a, he was a great asset to our team, not to J.R. King team, which is obvious. He was a huge asset, the biggest asset, but to the team at WWE. You know, he could help a lot of guys. He could, you know, little tidbits of information here and there. Jerry was not a drinker. 
you know, his famous, one of his famous quotes, lips, uh, lips that touch alcohol will never touch mine. I think he may have relented on that a little bit, but nonetheless, that was his saying for so many years, you know, he, so he didn't drink, he didn't do drugs. He was rarely late. He was old school and being prompt and ready and professional to do his work. And so, and then he also, because so many of the talents that we had were familiar with his exploits in the ring, he was a great source for information. Of what do you do here? What would you do there? You got an idea for this. I need a heat spot. I need a quick finish, whatever. And Jerry was great at sharing that information with those guys. So I just felt like it was a win-win for everybody involved. If we get him back, get his Jersey back on him and he'll start playing again. Well, and he starts playing again in November, November 19th, 2001. So he misses March, April, May, June, July, August, September, and October. But here you go. He's back in November and he's been there pretty much ever since. He's had some, some brief breaks here or there, but one of the big things we should mention is, uh, he gets put in the hall of fame and he gets put in by William Shatner. Yeah. What, what, what's up with that? Well, we know who stole the show at the 2007 hall of fame induction ceremony, the dream and going on last with his sons inducting him. Uh, that was a, a highlight for me in that regard. But selfishly, uh, opening the show with Stone Cold as my inductor was hard to top, hard act to follow. And, uh, but Jerry wanted, I think a lot of guys, I had a big hand in who I wanted to select to, to induct me and all that stuff. And, and it was a no brainer to me. And Steve was happy to do it. Uh, and then he wasn't, he was, that's not all his area of expertise. So he, he didn't have to do it, but he did it. Cause he loved me and he said as much on the show. Uh, but, uh, the, the thing with Jerry was that he wanted to be, a, he wanted to stand out. He wasn't going on first, which is the key spot. Cause Austin had that wrapped up. He wasn't going on last, but that was the dream spot. So wherever he was in the pecking order on that night, he, I'm sure he wanted to be good. Why well, I would want same as any of us to want to be stand out. Steal, steal the spotlight, steal the show, as they say. Well, his plan was to get Justin Timberlake, a kid from Memphis who became world famous, as we all know, as an entertainer, singer, et cetera. But he was a big fan of Lawler's growing up because Lawler was his Superman. Lawler was his superhero that was on TV every Saturday morning. They did a live 90 minute show with the great Lance Russell and Dave Brown every Saturday morning, live show, no net. And the, the star of that show, more often than not, in one form or another, was Jerry the King Lawler. So the, these kids, like Justin Timberlake, for example, that grew up in that area, King was a guy. So, uh, but it just the dates couldn't work out. Uh, con scheduling conflicts pre prevented it. How Shatner got on board is a, is beyond me. <laughs> uh, they did a little spot one time on on Raw where Lauder took a bump for Shatner and, uh, that may have been the catalyst to it. I'm not aware that, uh, Jerry's a big star Wars fan, but he might be, but in any event, I remember sitting in the green room that day, nervous as a whore in church, uh, thinking about how I was going to do my presentation right out of the box. And then I had to follow stone cold immediately, which is never going to be easy. So I outbooked myself there on that deal. Uh, so I'm worried I'm apprehensive. And then, uh, uh, I hear Shatner tell, ask Lawler, I asked one of the production guys, where's the prompter? And I need to, I haven't seen my script yet. 
uh-oh. There was no script, Bill. I said, Mr. Shatner, I don't think, just call me Bill. Okay, Bill. Bill, there's no script. It's ad-lib. Ad-lib city. And uh, he got a look of fright. Because I was standing behind him looking down his, his hairpiece. I want to see if I can see if he has wearing a hairpiece or not, how that worked. Because I was a mist- it was a... I was, uh, it was mysterious to me how he could have such natural looking hair be obviously be a piece, nice piece, but a piece nonetheless. So I was trying to investigate that standing behind him while he was sitting down, talking to somebody looking the other way. That's how he spent our days, folks. Uh, so anyhow, uh, that's how that worked out. Shatner got the deal. Hey, look it, on paper. If you didn't see his per- performance, it's a pretty impressive deal. Jerry Lawler is presented by William Shatner. Well, Shatner's got a huge, he's over. He's got a baby face falling with his, uh, and you don't believe me, go to Wizard World sometime watching how, what the kind of crowd he draws. So that's how that worked. It was a fun night, 2007. That's the weekend that we did the Donald Trump, Miss McMahon thing with uh, Bobby Lashley and Umaga, the hair, billionaire hair thing. And Let's talk it about was WrestleMania 27. Lawler finally gets his WrestleMania match. And, uh, of course, when you think of Jerry Lawler, you think about all his famous feuds and all the big matches he had. Of course, none bigger probably than Bret Hart. His WrestleMania match after all these years is with Michael Cole. Uh, Lawler is going to win by submission and the anonymous raw general manager will reverse the decision due to Steve Austin. who's the referee here physically getting involved in the match by pushing Cole. And that made Cole the winner by disqualification. Come on, man. Jerry Lawler finally gets a match at WrestleMania. That's against Michael Cole. You're friends with both of these guys. What'd you think? Well, first of all, Michael Cole would have, would have had no problem whatsoever putting Lawler over. Of course. And secondly, uh, why the decision was made. What are you saving Michael Cole for? <laughs> His next big program at next year's WrestleMania. Are you shitting me? Come on. That, and over the years, that, that's what happens sometimes in wrestling. When you start, when you go back and re- evaluate something. It makes no sense. There's no upside for having this loose-ended, non-conclusive finish. It's poor creative and being goddamn lazy. And and I see that a lot in, in on TV and around. There's laziness. There's goddamn producers and coaches and agents. Uh, you know, I, I just it's annoying to me. That's another sh- that could be a whole damn show. But y- yeah, I. Uh, that made no sense. And I called it. I was there. You know, that got, they got that punched my ticket to get me a, uh, a gratuitous. Well, throw JR a bone. I got a bone for you. You stick it up your ass. How's that? Uh, you know, come on. What'd you, so, uh, what'd you think it, of the, you know, he's finally getting a WrestleMania match. It's gotta be a big deal to him, even though he probably downplays it. I mean, it's, it's WrestleMania and he's, you know been around for a long time. This is the biggest show. He belongs to have a match there. He deserves it. Oh, Cole. Oh, Cole. Well, it shows you that a lot of the creative input that that Vince was getting was from people that had never seen Jerry's serious work when he was on fire in Memphis or an an AWA and other places, uh, as a baby face or a heel, they had one vision of Jerry Lawler, a comedian, a comedy wrestler. That's their vision of Jerry Lawler and they were internal. So the input that Vince is getting is, 
you know, we could do this. We get one more out of this. We get one more out of that. We could do stuff with the coal, blah, blah, blah. And he, of course, he barely laughed, thought it was funny. And, uh, and I don't think he thought, he thought it was funny to get even Lawler. Cause I don't know if he, Vince thinks that deep in that regard. He might, he might, but I think they thought it was be an entertaining aspect of the show in a let this loves these let me up segments, let me up segment where you have a serious business going on. Boom, boom, boom. Then you have a match where it's you kind of let me up, you take the foot off the gas, got a cool here. And I think and use that as comedy or a short match between uh, unskilled people. And that was not the case there with Lawler. His skills inbound on the roster, but bottom line was that that was his perception as a comedian. And now I see he's even, he's doing a little bit more straight stuff on TV. He has his jokes here, there, and yon, but they don't have anybody sitting out there on Monday nights. that has a better feel for how to analyze a match and get talent over than Jerry Lawler. So, uh, he's the best color guy they've got in my view when he wants to be that guy. But sometimes, you know, he, it's easy for him to be swayed. He's like, uh, Jerry's so much like Bobby Heenan in their amazing skill set, as good as I've ever seen, and all the things, they, the boxes they check. Uh, but, you know, Jerry had rather be funny. He'd rather be entertaining because the wrestling he's seeing is not commensurate to him being serious uh, oftentimes. At least that's how I perceive it. I might be wrong. So he's a, he's a, He's still evolving in that regard, much like Jericho was mentioned earlier, but, uh, you know, he's it left his own devices. He'll be a little bit funny, but when the moment calls for, for him to knuckle up and, 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 and to call a serious match, he can still do that with the best of them. What do you think, uh, Lawler's legacy in the wrestling business is going to be? Do you think because such a big audience saw him doing comedy that it's going to be comedy and, and puppies and all that? Uh, Probably yes. The older audience, Conrad, uh, even in down dipping, and you're not old, but your 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 age group uh, can remember Lawler as a serious star, whether it be in Florida or Atlanta. Of course, Memphis is best known for his AWA title run, his stuff with Kerry Von Erich, working for Vern, all those things. The Dallas uh, experimentation where you had the the, the Texas talent, the Dallas, ta- Tennessee talent, the Dallas talent, all that stuff. He's and his empty arena matches, his matches, all these great stars. Uh, at the angle we did the other day with Jericho and, uh, and, uh, Scorpio sky was essentially the same basic angle that Lawler did with Flair in 1982. So he's not giving credit for those situations very much at all, but he's, he'll always be known to me as. I've always said this, Conrad, and I truly believe it, that the two men with the most boxes checked with the high level skill sets, plural, were Bobby Heenan and Jerry Lawler. Wrestling, heel, babyface, tag teams, blood and guts, uh, a, a real, you know, 60 minute broadways. Uh, and like I said, I mentioned the tags to the fact of managing. Even though Lawler's not known to be a manager, can you imagine how good a manager he would be? Oh yeah. He'd be he up had, there with Cornette and Heenan and the whole deal. Absolutely. But he was such, he was better than Cornette and better than Heenan and better than Heyman in the ring. He's who That's Cornette where, looked up to. I mean, yeah. it was one of his very favorite wrestlers. Let's um let's talk about as we're wrapping up our, our episode in tribute to Jerry the King Lawler. I do want to remind everybody, tomorrow is Jerry's birthday. He's gonna turn seventy. It's a big day. 
So be sure to go out of your way and send him a birthday tweet. But we posted a, a tweet saying, Hey, want a question? Want to ask a question to JR about Jerry, the King Lawler by all means drop it here. And if you've got a question you want to ask about next week's show, well, just cruise on over to at JR grilling on Twitter. Jim, I'm going to give you a few here. Rapid fire. Let's get through as many as we can. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Michael wants to know when you were in WCW, was there ever talk of bringing Lawler in there? Don't recall any serious talk whatsoever, but, uh, we would have been smarter and a better company if we had, uh, Carl Fitzgerald wants to know what's your favorite one liner you remember over the years of Jerry Lawler on air. Oh my God. That's impossible to name. It's like saying, what's your children you like the best or the better in my case, uh, too many, man. Uh, it's just, he used to sit there. He had notes. He had, he had his own material. And it, it got so dog-eared and tattered because he never changed it. It was just, he had things he liked to certain go-to jokes based on category. But what Jerry did the most amazingly was during the show, he would doodle. I mean, he would draw little cartoons, little caricatures all over his format sheets. And some of them were R-rated or worse uh, or better, depending on your perspective. Uh, but I, I always said to him, if we took all your doodling from your TV sheets and put it into a little paperback uh, book, it's money because there's cartoons and all, and it was, we, he and I could come up with the catches. We never got around to it, unfortunately, but that's what he did the, the most, but he's, he's a big doodler at, at, during the matches, uh, uh, when we were working together, but he's, uh, he's just, he, he's amazing, you know, amazing on how he could process what he sees into a story that the fans can understand. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the artwork you mentioned deplorable ombre wants to know, do you have any Lawler artwork at home? And if so, what's your favorite piece and why? Well, I do not have any, and it's not because I haven't requested, uh, you know, for years, uh, I, I stayed on his ass about, uh, making a Christmas card, a character, Christmas card, a kind of comedic thing, uh, Jan and me. And, uh, unfortunately we never got around to that, but, uh, I've seen at all the shows we've done. If you haven't seen Jerry's artwork, go to his website, man. Uh, he's, he's a, he's a brilliant artist. He, and he said, well, what's he, what's he, what's he like? Well, he draws a lot like Norman Rockwell. So if you haven't seen Lawler's artwork, Google Norman Rockwell, look at some of the work he does. It's, it's pretty astonishing, obviously, but Jerry's in that deal. He's, he's very, very gifted. He could have made a great living as an artist if he had not decided to go to be uh, the, the uh, Rembrandt on the canvas, meaning the squared circle. So he's really brilliant in that regard. I, I, I say all the time, it's a, it's a matter of time management and discipline. If he took the time to organize himself. Jerry Lauder could make one of the great calendars of all time. He's, you know, little, he's creative. So calendars or posters or any of those things, uh, he's, he's brilliant at. Uh, James wants to know, is it true that Jr. was the man who had to let Brian Christopher go? Yeah, I gave him his notice. Uh, I did. It's part of my job. You know, uh, I didn't like it, but I had no, I, you know, he got, I was sitting there referring to when he, when he got stopped at the border in Canada, I, I had, we had no leg to stand on. He got popped and he had, he had substance on him that didn't need to be there. 
I, you know, I, I had, I just, I fulfilled what I had, what I was told to do, but it was not, you know, you know what you got to do. We can't, you can't have it. So yeah. So yeah, I did. I did it. And it wasn't fun. I, you know, it wasn't a fun proposition. Part of that job I used to do there folks is not as glamorous as uh, sometimes I make it out to be and let people know the bad news. It's not, it's no fun whatsoever. Jim wants to know what's Jerry's best quality as a co-commentator. Well, he's, he's quick witted and he processes what he sees very rapidly. And like I said earlier, he can turn what he processes into dialogue that is valuable and viable to the viewer. So I think him processing what he sees in a rapid fire and then coming back with something that, that makes everything makes that where he makes this point even more clear is a great gift. He has, he's able to visualize things and he's again, so intelligent and, and, uh, just amazing as how you could create dialogue, right, right, boom. And I found out, as I mentioned earlier, that what, what lessened that spontaneity is that too much preparation. And, you know, we never went down and said, okay, I'll say this King. And you say that it was always, okay, I'll start the segment and, and bring it to you. And, and he didn't even know how I was going to bring it to him. He, he, he's cause he listened. And so he, yeah, his processing was amazing. And great crowd psychology, psychology in general. He's an old school guy, didn't have a college degree. You know, he's, he's hard school of hard knocks, you know, honor student, but he's, he's straight smart. And so he uses that to his advantage. Well, we appreciate you guys tuning in this week. This was a fun episode. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. We're going to get December kicked off right next week. We're going to talk about Bischoff in the WWE. Of course, uh, JR wasn't there for the most recent run, but I'm sure we'll do a little freestyling about it, but he was there for Eric's entire run the first time. And after being across uh, from him and all those battle lines for the Monday night war, this should be an interesting topic to say the least. We've also got the rest of the year mapped out for you. Uh, the following week on December 12th, we're going to be back your way with Armageddon 2004, uh, on December 19th. It's all about TLC 2009. We'll get in our way back machine the day after Christmas and talk about Starcade 88 and uh, stay tuned right at the first of the year. We're going to do something very interesting. Jim and myself are going to get together and we're going to do a watch along of the night that WCW presented the finger poke of doom. And that <laughs> same week on here on our, our string of shows the day before we'll have Tony Schiavone watch the Mrs. Foley baby boy becoming the world champion. Of course, that's the night that he famously dropped the line. That'll put some butts in seats. Those shows were head to head. So we're going to watch both of those shows with you the first week of the year. It should be a lot of fun, especially if you love the nostalgia of professional wrestling like we do. We want to remind you as well, if you go to jimrossshirts.com, we've got a ton of great shirts that are here just in time for Christmas. They're the perfect stocking stuffer, are they not? Oh, absolutely, Conrad. And also, uh, you know, I've been working very diligently on uh, a new website. Uh, jrsbbq.com, jrsbbq.com, and the reason I bring that up is because we hope to have it uh, uh, going this weekend, and we're going to be able to fulfill your orders for sauces, jerky, seasoning, all those things. Again, just quote unquote, just in time for the holidays. So jrsbbq.com, uh, uh, check it out, bookmark it, wherever you cool smart kids do. And, uh, hopefully we'll be able to do some business with you. We appreciate that. So yeah, the t-shirts are doing good. I got my daughter's, uh, 
requests for shirts for the for the holidays. So they must be getting over, as they say, with the with the younger crowd. So that's good. And uh, was, we've got some good shows coming up. Always get honest here, folks. It may not be what you want to hear, but it's what you got to hear. You want the truth, and that's what we're going to bring you every week. So, and, and Conroy, we got uh, we. And the, and the world of AEW does never end, man. Every Wednesday night, we're on TV on TNT. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be fun to see where how this uh, all how we finish out December with some very important big shows. The, the you know the, the WWE is doing all they can to make sure that uh, they they cultivate their NXT brand. Don't blame them a damn bit. It doesn't affect me one iota. It should not affect anybody in our roster one iota. We got all we can say grace over. Period. Taking care of our business and not worrying about anything else. And also, it's okay, folks, to be a fan of WWE and AEW, and everybody else is trying to make a living in wrestling. Why not? So that's where I stand. I'm. I'm uh, I don't want to be decisive. Uh, uh, you know, divide. What's that word I'm looking for? Divisive. 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 Yeah. Been a dick. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm for wrestling. Conrad, if we don't do that, how stupid are we? Well, how stupid it, are you and I? If we don't com- try to get, we want everybody to grow. Oh, absolutely. And and I can't believe that we're so stupid that we waited till the end of the show to mention that Jim Ross and myself are coming across the pond, man. Grilling Jr. is going to be there as a part of inside the ropes on February the 7th. We'll be in London on February uh, the 8th. We'll be in Manchester and on February the 9th, we'll be in Glasgow. Tickets are on sale now at insidetheropes.co.uk forward slash JR. I want to give that to you one more time. Insidetheropes.co.uk forward slash JR. This is going to be a lot of fun. The first time you and I have made a trip across the pond, Bruce and I did it last year. I know you've done it several times. I'm looking forward to this, man. Yeah. Kenny McIntosh has a great crew, uh, lovely ladies that work there, hardworking guys. I enjoy being around them. Uh, and, and Jen and all these, they're beautiful ladies. And of course I kind of like that. Uh, but they treat us right. The fans are unabashed. They ask the great questions, folks. It's going to be a lot of fun with Conrad and I, uh, you know, we don't have any questions off limits. We're going to have some fun with you. We're going to tell some great stories, sign your swag, you know, the meet and greet thing, the picks, all that stuff. So, and then we don't rush anybody. You know, Kenny does a great job of producing his shows. So we're going to make London, Manchester, and Glasgow special for everybody. And uh, we just hope that you'll join us. And by the way, you know, those tickets are not a bad idea for a stocking stuffer. Tremendous. If you're a wrestling fan or you have a wrestling fan in your life, this is one hell of an item to pick up. Check it out right now. It's inside the ropes.co.uk forward slash JR. February will be here before you know it. Indeed it will. And look, I think we get to go to a train ride or two. I'm kind of digging this. I'm like a little kid sometimes. I'm a childlike. Uh, I love it over there. I never travel outside the United States anywhere I like more than going to the UK. It's not just kissing ass. It's just a fact. I love the food. Be honest with you about that. I can understand but pretty much how everybody, what everybody's saying uh, because they are challenged to hear what I'm saying. So it's going to be fun, man. We're going to have a good time. Can't wait, folks. Get your, you can't be there if you don't have a ticket. I'll tell you that right now. That's conclusive. Your ass will not be in the building if you don't have a ticket. So we're giving you the opportunity to get that ticket right now and uh, and, and, and gift. Good holiday gifts, as we said. We will, Conrad and I will not let you down. I'll guarantee you that. We'll see you in February, and we'll see you next week right here, always on Westwood One, always Thursday, always 6 a.m. Eastern. 
and next week, especially Eric Bischoff. This should be a fun show next week, right here on grill and Jr. with the voice of wrestling, Jim Ross. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.